Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Nine, three, six, six, three. That's 866 229 3663. International callers dial 704 875 8010 or order online at the 3 dot com. Resident Herbalist Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk. Thanks for joining us on the American Voice Radio Network. Magical engineer Frank and I have a great show. We're going to be talking about dry eye. We touched on it a little bit last week, um, but we we have some more details and some um, new medications that are coming out for this. So I thought we'd kind of cover it in a little bit more detail today. So this is dry eye part two. Uh, Also, we're going to be talking about... um, your liver and the indications of if you have a fatty liver going on. And if we have time left over, we may touch on some supplement secrets. So we got lots to talk about and a quack report. But before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fi or righteous men and women in uniform. I'm lifting this nation up in prayer. I'm hitting the knees, seeking Lord's face. Hope you are too. You know, uh, we need to pray for righteous leadership and only God's hand can provide that. So we have to ask God for that help uh, on a nation that, you know, is so influential in the world. We, we have a big responsibility, and we have to be God-like as a nation. And uh, so the only way to do that is to seek the Lord. So I have my devotional, and I, today, let's see, it comes from, uh, let's see, Isaiah 30 and 2 Corinthians 4, and it goes like this. When you're plagued with persistent problems, uh, the ones that seem to go on and on, Maybe look at it as a rich opportunity. An ongoing problem is like a tutor who always is by your side. I know it's hard to think of it this way, but, yep. Learning possibilities are limited only by your willingness to be teachable. So in faith, thank me for your problem. Ask me to open your eyes and your heart to all that I am accomplishing through this difficulty. And once you have become grateful for the problem, it loses its power to drag you down. On the contrary, your thankfulness attitude will lift you up into heavenly places with me. And from this perspective, your difficulty can be seen as a slight temporary distress that is producing uh, you to be translucent in my glory. And that will never cease. 
Hey, I know. God makes lemonade out of lemons, right? All the time, every day. So, uh, and I often often hear from Pastor Ernie Sanders says, if you're having it oh so gay, oh so smooth and no problems, then you may want to take a reflective look at your face. And uh, so hit the DC Lord's face and mind the time. It grows short because that is the way. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Okay, first up in the quack report, let's see, a British town is deciding to add fluoride to milk. Oh, yeah, I read this and I went, what? Yeah, a British school's in Blackpool, England, they're going to offer fluoride infused milk to their school. It's going to be part of their milk lunch program. Uh, so they're placing eight milligrams of fluoride in a carton of milk. And this equates to about 4.2 parts per billion of fluoride. Um, just to have a comparison, in the United States, they only recommend a safe level of fluoride as 0.7 parts per billion. Oh, boy. Goodness. Plus, they probably already have it in the water, you know, poor kids over there. All right. Um, last but not least in the Quack Report, here's a, here's a uh, report on those gadgets. So you're probably going to see some under the Christmas tree this year. Those fitness tracker things that people wear, you know, to, to monitor their heart rate, uh, how, many, how many steps they walk and all that. Well, uh, Christmas a Guide uh, influences uh, favorites of Fitbit, Jawbone, Misfit, Samsung Gear, and Apple trackers. There's some sort of safety security warning, according to experts. They are claiming that these companies have unprecedented access to your fitness band data, uh, and which they can sell to insurance premium companies, um, which also could affect your job security and life insurance premiums, health insurance premiums, and even have your identity stolen. This is a report from the Center of Digital Democracy. It's warning uh, wearers of these gadgets that um, there's a serious privacy risk and security risk with these items. American manufacturers could be feeding a lot of the information they collect from the gadgets, uh, your heart rate, your sleep pattern, your calorie consumption, your stress levels, your... um, your mood, some of these things can even tell you what mood you're in, and they can sell this information to private healthcare companies, insurance companies, and so forth. And it could make, um, it, can, it could be megabucks for these companies to sell your information. So FYI, if you get one of these um, items under the tree this year, think about where all that data is going. Mm. And that wraps the quack report. Oh, thank you, Frank. I know Frank's going to come up with some really great Christmas music, kind of sprinkle it in the show today, you know, like fairy dust. (laughs) Get you all in the mood. All right, we're going to talk about dry eye part two, uh, because in the United States, we got like 20 million people with dry eye, about 40% of them have this condition on a regular basis. Women, also over the age of 45, especially if they're menopausal, have a higher risk of developing dry eye. And it's also been recently discovered that the veteran population has a high risk of dry eye. 
So if you have dry eye syndrome now, medical science says that you have a 76% risk that condition's going to get worse over time. So why are so many people having this problem? And is it a new condition for modern, the modern century, you know? I don't remember hearing this when I was growing up, but dry eye syndrome started to gain medical attention back in the 80s, the 1980s. Research really didn't start on the condition until the 1990s. And many physicians feel that dry eye syndrome is a symptomatic disease. In 1991, there was a study and doctors listed dry eye syndrome as increasing with the incidence along with cataracts and diabetes. So dry eye syndrome prevents the wearing of contact lenses and also can affect eye surgery, increasing the risk of infection. So we're going to take a closer look at dry eye, see how we can prevent it. Well, first, let's look at some of the symptoms, because according to Medscape.com, there are as many as 12 symptoms that are associated with dry eye syndrome, or as the medical textbooks will list it in its Latin form, carry conjunctivitis sicca, which is Latin for dry and inflamed eyes. So eye physicians will grade each of the symptoms on a scale of one to four. And the symptoms are made worse when there is smoke in the air, if there's low humidity, windy weather, dry heat in winter, months, um, ceiling fans blowing on you all in the summer months can make the condition worse. So people with dry eye often state their condition is worse uh, towards the end of the day. So their eyelids can feel really heavy and it's hard to keep their eyes open. So if a person with dry eye can have floaters, they can get worse uh, in their visual field. And it's very common for especially nearsightedness and as we get older. So dry eye can also cause blurry vision. And it seems that the dry eye syndrome can also include eyes that tear too much. And this could be, um, this could lead to a condition called uh, uh, pyphoria, which means the eye is not draining significantly. So if it's not corrected, there could develop serious cornea surface disease out of that. So here are some symptoms of dry eye syndrome. Your eyes obviously feel dry. You feel like you have a foreign body sensation in your eye, a gritty feeling in your eye. You may have blood in the eye as well as a lot of eye irritation, mucus drainage and itching, watery eyes that are excessive tearing, which could lead to viral conjunctivitis, also sensitivity to light and blurry vision. So what is causing more people to have dry eye? Well, this condition can involve um, your um, meibomian gland, which causes your eyelids to become red, so um, if the gland's affected, um, the mucous membrane that covers the front of the eye and um, lines the inside of your eyelid, which provides a lot of that lubricant, a little bit of uh, mucus and tear, it can um, be so affected it can be very reduced at causing the dryness. So if the gland is not functioning well, it causes conjunctivitis. And the, this gland also produces, get this, immune surveillance. Yeah, in other words, it prevents infection, uh, infectious microbes from entering your eye. So dry eye cuts down on that uh, protection there. 
So are there some medicines that can cause you to have dry eye? Well, according to Medscape.com, there are certain prescribed medications that could put patients at risk of developing dry eye disease, and they are antihistamines, beta blockers, contraceptives, either oral or topical, uh, glaucoma medications, either oral or topical, and antidepressants, uh, diuretics, and hormone medicines. So medical conditions that also can increase your risk of dry eye. So patients who have certain medical conditions, they're going to be at a higher risk of developing dry eye syndrome, and that would be people with rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid conditions, uh, lymphatic disease, post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, uh, lupus and rosacea, which is adult acne. Well, are there any other irritants? Well, people with dry eye often do computer work and do not blink their eyes often enough. And it is recommended by eye specialists to get these glasses that have a special blue coating on the eyewear lens, which will buffer the blue screen light to prevent the eyes from getting strained and tired. Other things that can contribute to dry eye are excessive alcohol consumption, a lot of caffeine, wearing contact lenses, hormonal changes like if you're going through menopause or if you're on hormone medicines, high altitudes, vitamin A deficiency, eye drops to remove the redness in your eyes like Visine, as well as LASIK eye surgery, droopy eyelids, eye trauma, and bulging eyes, which is often associated with a thyroid disorder. So try to avoid the dry and drafty environments and fireplaces with a lot of smoke and dust and avoid rubbing your eyes. Avoid cortisone-type products and prescription ointments for skin conditions uh, for uh, inflammation around your eyes, which can increase your risk of glaucoma and dry eye. So some sundry and cosmetic uh, products will also make dry eyes worse, so be aware of that. And avoid the ceiling fans or the prolonged exposure to air conditioning or heat vents, which can dry out that membrane. So are there any medical treatments we should be aware of? Well, often patients are complaining of dry eye. They start out using those over-the-counter eye wetting drops that are sold in your drugstores. So if you're using these drops, make sure the product has the fewest preservatives, such as a product called Soothe by Bosch & Loam. So the next step is your eye doctor is going to prescribe an eye drop that's um, you know, prescription drug to reduce inflammation, um, but it's not going to remove the cause of the inflammation. So it's just going to get at the symptom. So there are certain medical conditions which could prohibit patients from using the prescription eye drops, such as if you uh, suffer from frequent eye infections or herpes of the eye. Now, one product for eye inflammation that is prescribed, you've seen it advertised for the last decade, is called Restasis. It's been on the market since 2003, and this product can take several months to show patients any signs of benefit, and it can cause patients to discontinue using it because of the side effects it gives them. So monthly cost of Restasis is around $325. So let's look at some of the side effects of Restasis. You can get burning and stinging of the eye, itching, 
in the eye, redness and blurry vision, excessive eye drainage, uh, you feel like you have a foreign body in your eye, allergic reactions, which could be quite serious, would be rash, dizziness, swelling of the eye, face, tongue, or throat, severe itching, difficulty breathing, eye pain and discomfort, injury to the eye, and you also want to seek medical attention if that's the case using that product. Also, you can also experience dysfunction of the meibomian gland using restasis. So research on patient overview of uh, using restasis, it showed that about 72% of the time the dry eye symptoms uh, were helped, but when compared to supplying the body with fish oil, fish oil, the dry eye was rectified 100% of the time. Fish oil, okay? Fish oil versus restasis, okay? Now, patients that use restasis reported that after using the product, they developed a dysfunction of the meibomian gland, and after stopping the product, their condition improved. And patients also state that while on restasis, they had an increase in their daily use of wetting drops by 20 drops a day, which is 10 times the normal dose. So your eyes felt dry using this anti-dry eye product. So when they stopped using it, though, they were able to um, cut back on their drops, their wetting drops. Now, some doctors speculate it could be the castor oil in the restasis that's causing the side effects which are known to cause allergic reactions. Now, restasis also contains uh, cyclosporine, which will suppress immune system function. Beware of that. All right, so let's look at the new product that's just been approved by the FDA. Uh, Zydra, have you heard about this newest drug for dry eyes? Zydra costs $400 a month. And here's the list of its side effects. Uh, Changes in vision eye irritation and discomfort, blurred vision, red eyes and red-colored eyelids, Ooh. Uh, change in taste or loss of taste, coughing, itching eyes, excessive drainage from the eyes or watery eyes, fever, headache, pain and tenderness around the eyes and cheekbones, stuffy or runny nose, tightness in chest and difficulty breathing. So um, Zydra... Uh, is being compared to restasis, and it's being promoted as having fewer side effects, and it works within just two weeks, they say. So the FDA just approved it for sale, and, of course, you're going to be seeing more TV commercials on Zydra. So let's look at some protective measures, shall we? Because I don't know about you, but all those side effects made the dry eye worse. A lot of the side effects were why you were seeking relief of dry eye to begin with. So you want to protect your eyes from the sun's rays. Lower your your computer screen so your gaze is directed downward. This will minimize discomfort. Also, you want to hydrate your system. Drink more water. Cut back on the caffeine, which is very dehydrating, and get rid of the alcohol if you're drinking that. Um, Also, if you're using eye drops, To hydrate the eyes, get the drops without the chemical preservatives and get the ones with the higher concentration of glycerin and propylene glycol. That will help uh, you out. Some people will add colloidal silver uh, to their eye drops. Uh, That's helpful, especially if you think you have an infection. You want to add also more omega-3 fatty acids to the diet, and that's going to be important. 
just remember, you know, blink often as well, especially if you're doing a lot of computer work. Now, according to the Journal of Clinical Interventions in Aging in their 2015 um, journal, they said the omega-3 fatty acids in fish oil had a significant improvement for dry eye. Uh, another study in the 2003 Journal of Clinical Nutrition showed that women who ate five or more four-ounce servings of tuna per week had a 33 to 60% reduction in dry eye symptoms. It's the omega-3 fatty acids. Also, hot compresses over the eyes a few times a day will stimulate those glands to make more eye lubricant to hydrate those three levels of tear film that your eyes have. And uh, we want to make sure we're getting some good eye nutrients. Uh, some eye experts feel that when we remove gluten from the diet, it helps the eyes as well as getting more vitamin A-rich foods into the diet. So if you're using supplements, try to use the whole food type, uh, not the synthetic or isolated nutrient supplements. So eat more foods with the omega-3 fatty acids like your olive oil, coconut oil, sardines, salmon, to help reduce your inflammation. And if you tend not to drink enough water, try hydrating your system with coconut water because some people say, I just don't like water. It has no flavor. Well, try the coconut water. So now the potassium in your coconut it will assist your eyes, and also Celtic sea salt will have essential minerals to help your eyes as well. So herbs which reduce general inflammation of the eye is very helpful, like bayberry bark, willow bark, meadowsweet, Herbs that help to assist the glands of the eye to produce more lubricant are golden seal and mullein. And if there is an infection, I like to add my echinacea, eye bright, and golden seal as a combination. Now, for inflammation of the eye, I like to add eye bright herb. And now, if there's a thyroid condition promoting dry eye, I like to use black walnut. So if menopause is the reason we're having a little bit of a dry eye, I like to use the six female herbs that you find in the female maturity formula at thepowerherbs.com. Now, for men, there is a male hormone formula for you. If you have dry eye, check that out as well. And if you are on medications that are causing you dry eye, well, see if there's some natural options and you can replace that drug instead. So if you are looking for herbal products to help you with dry eye, you might want to contact the folks at Apothecary Herbs and ask about their herbal eye wash. It has your baybari, your golden seal, your eye bright in there, um, and it's, it's a very concentrated formula which you just put a few drops in water and then rinse the eyes. You bathe the eyes, so it's an eye wash. Very soothing. Um, if you've got a lot of inflammation going on, you may want to use your uh, pain anti-inflammatory herbal formula with the willow bark and meadowsweet in it and they do have also at apothecary herbs their black walnut their male and female formulas if you got the hormone imbalance going on they have the celtic sea salt the mullein also for the glands and of course your echinacea formula is there uh, and if you if you just feel like your body needs a little bit more nutrition on uh, try the body food mix See if that won't boost you over, you know, add that grain of rice to the scale, bam, and get this thing done. So if you're interested, check it out at thepowerherbs.com. The folks at Apothecary Herbs, that's their website, thepowerherbs.com. If you don't have Internet, just give them a call and ask for a free catalog. The number is 866 866- 
That's 866 229 If you're outside the U.S., 704 885 0277 and of course the powerherbs.com that's where your healthcare options just became endless hey and the best thing is is if you want to try this you can uh, you can take advantage of their uh, Christmas holiday special their secret Santa if you will special you'll save 20% and get US free ground ship on orders of $25 or more and that is good uh, through the 22nd so it's good through Thursday of this week, so don't wait too long. Uh, if you're on the website, you can just use the uh, coupon code that's on the homepage. It's um, SS2016. Um, SS stands for Secret Santa, and plug that into the shopping cart. If you don't do internet, just you know call in and place your order and ask about the Secret Santa discount, and they can apply that for you. If you prefer to mail an order, just write the coupon code on your order form. Make sure it's postmarked by the 22nd, and that discount will be honored. So uh, if you have an order form already, uh, just fill it out. Write SS2016 as your discount for 20% off and free shipping in the U.S., and save. There you go, thepowerherbs.com. Uh, also, if you're up on the on the website uh, and you have email, uh, do sign up for the free newsletters. I got some really great feedback this week on the newsletters. People just love it. And so I appreciate that feedback very much. Thank you. Uh, also on the products, we have a lot of people that have um, kind of corrected their dry eye issue with the herbal eye wash formula. So give it a whirl. Thepowerherbs.com, 866-229-3663. And um, let's see, the American Survival Newsletter goes out on Tuesdays, and the HealthQuest goes out on Fridays. But this Friday, HealthQuest is not going out due to the holiday. They're taking a little break, uh, but they will resume next week. Uh, So you can sign up and get your newsletters rolling by next week right after the Christmas holiday. So um, if you have email, you can get them free subscription to the newsletters. Just go to thepowerherbs.com and go to the Books and Newsletter tab and uh, put the newsletter in your shopping cart along with a free catalog and check out for free. And uh, you'll be amazed how powerful you are with the right tools and information. That's what it's about. Powerherbs.com puts power back in your hands. Well, I can see by the clock We're going to be taking a little break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about your liver. Do you think it's fatty? How would you know if you had a fatty liver? We're going to talk about that. You know, holidays coming up, you're going to be eating a lot of things you normally don't eat. How's that going to affect your liver? Hmm. Going to find out. We'll be right back. Wendy Wilson will be right back. 
Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Trust anyone wearing a mask, robbers, cattle rustlers, or doctors. I listen to Herb Talk Live. The ancient Greeks thought time herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010. Or online at thepowerherbs.com. Our prescription for good health, Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson. No insurance card required. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704 704- 875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom
Ronnie Wilson, and we're going to be talking about fatty livers. Hopefully you don't have one. But if you ever wondered if you did, uh, maybe this segment of the show is going to help you out. Uh, some of us could have a fatty liver and just not know it. So there are like 50 million Americans living uh, a lifestyle, uh, and 90 to 100% of them will, well, they already have a fatty liver, or soon they're going to have one because of the American lifestyle. So modern medicine has two, two categories of fatty liver, the non-alcohol type, and the other category is associated with obesity and alcohol consumption. So there really is a third category which science tends to ignore, and this problem is caused by prescription medications. Mm. So what is a fatty liver? Uh, well, a fatty liver is a liver that has accumulated a lot of fat cells. And interestingly, uh, medical science does not call a liver with some of these fat cells um, a disease. Well, and the reason is because they're very likely that there is no permanent damage yet, no scarring, no cirrhosis happening. So, um, the, and the condition at this point could be reversed with some, you know, uh, inexpensive lifestyle changes, right? Also, science really is not precisely sure how the liver gets all clogged up with the fat cells. It could be a digestive and met metabolism problem, uh, or it could be your diet. Now, you officially have a fatty liver if the weight of the liver increases by 5 to 10%. So a healthy adult, their liver weighs about 3 pounds, and a fatty liver is going to weigh 4 to 5 pounds. So this um, is why medical examiners weigh the vital organs during their autopsy to help determine you know, the cause of death. So if the liver gets fatty, it shows this abnormal function of an organ. Uh, it gets inflamed, and you can also are at risk of getting hepatitis. If the condition is not reversed, fibrosis and cirrhosis or scar tissue can develop within about 10 to 15 years. So it is estimated about 20 to 40% of indiv individuals who are overweight are going to run the risk of having um, hepatitis, um, or uh, cirrhosis of the liver. An indication of being overweight is excess fat around the waist. So for women, if your waist is 35 inches or greater, and men, if it's 40 inches or greater, you could be putting your liver at risk. All right, so let's look at some of the medical... So if you go to your a medical doctor, they will want to take a blood sample to check, you know, to see if you have elevated liver enzymes. And if the enzymes are elevated, it's an indication that damage is already affecting your liver. So when your doctor may want to sample your liver, you know, take a biopsy and check your for liver cells, fatty liver cells, um, I personally would object to cutting into an organ like that, uh, a biopsy, especially if, if, it's, if the organ is sick. Cutting into it, you know, is damaging it. It's not going to help. Um, otherwise, they could do is an ultrasound or a CT scan. That can indi indicate if the liver is a, a bit enlarged, okay? So for overweight individuals that tend to have a fatty liver, they're going to be treated for um, not only obesity and diabetes, um, and they hope that will correct the fatty liver problem. Now, there is this non-drinker liver problem situation that we mentioned. It's one of the categories. So if you don't drink alcohol, 
and you have a fatty liver, you may have inherited a weak liver uh, from your ancestors or that your lifestyle is contributing to um, the weak liver and uh, increasing its weight. Sometimes it's obesity, sometimes it's diabetes or both. So over time, the liver will enlarge and then the cells can be replaced with scar tissue. And uh, this is called non-alcoholic uh, cirrhosis. So if it is very likely that the liver will fail or develop cancer in this situation. So according to health experts, sick livers are on the rise, about 20% increase in adults, causing about 6 million Americans to seek hepatic treatment. Now, rates are up in the Asian and Hispanic children as well by 3%. Um, some of the, the health experts are blaming the high fructose corn syrup that children are consuming. So if America, more than half of the children, 53%, are overweight, they could have fatty livers, um, um, autopsies have been done, and some children as young as four have shown fatty liver uh, conditions. So what are the risks if you're a non-drinker of having liver problems? There are several factors that can contribute to liver illness. Uh, as mentioned, heredity can be play a part of it. This illness also likes to rear its ugly head when we're middle-aged. Uh, so we're hitting that middle age mark, be aware, uh, especially those that are overweight or obese. So if you suffer from, let's say, high cholesterol or triglycerides, your risk is higher for developing a fatty liver. So if you are pre-diabetic or diabetic, your risk increases as well. And if you have digestive diseases of the small intestine, like Crohn's disease, your risk is magnified again. So if you have a viral hepatitis or even an autoimmune uh, disease, your risk is, again, greater. So people that are suffering from, let's say, malnutrition or an overload of iron are at risk. So they've got too much iron in the system. And if you suffer from tuberculosis, again, you are at risk of liver disease. Um, so let's say you have liver problems due to alcohol. That's the other category of having a fatty liver is disease in accordance to science. You consume a fair amount of alcohol on a regular basis. And we're talking about, you know, drinking two or more alcoholic beverages per day. And perhaps you're a binge drinker. Um, that could be uh, factored in as well. Some people go on one or two binges per week. So if you are a moderate drinker for like, let's say, 10 or 15 years, your liver may have some problems. And if you are a heavy drinker, for a short period of time, your liver will have problems. Typically, we see the fatty liver disease due to alcohol happen over a 10 to 15 year period of, you know, drinking, drinking, drinking. Um, well, let's look at some of the drugs, the prescription drugs, the other category that, you know, medicine doesn't like to mention, that could cause liver disease and a fatty liver. The prescription drugs that can be, uh, make your liver fatty are aspirin therapy. Anybody on that? for, you know, sending in the blood and that kind of thing, or for cancer. Sometimes they're prescribing aspirin now for cancer. Um, let's see, uh, 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 some of the drugs for heart arrhythmias uh, can cause fatty liver as well as the calcium channel blockers and also the anti-inflammatory drugs and also the... Um, uh, the cortisone and prednisone and cortisteroids can also 
lead you down the road to liver disease. Uh, cancer drugs, as well as estrogen drugs, um, uh, anti-epileptic drugs, um, tetracycline, and uh, carbon uh, tetracycloid, which is a cleaning agent that you find in refrigerant, but if you absorb it or breathe it in, it can really wreak havoc with the liver. There's also a combination of drugs you should be aware of. If you're mixing a bunch of prescription medicines, it could be very dangerous for your liver. Doctors and pharmacists really don't know what happens after you take just one prescription because it causes so many chemical changes in your metabolism. So every time that you add a drug to your first drug you're taking, you are playing pretty much chemical Russian roulette. So you risk hurting your liver when you take many prescription drugs. So to be more specific, um, if you have a lot of deadly liver combos, you might want to avoid um, antibiotics and um, HIV drugs and anti-cholesterol drugs. Those combinations are severely hurtful to your liver. So what are some of the symptoms? Well, if your liver decides to send you some signals there's a problem, you may experience um, things like a dull and nagging pain in your abdomen, uh, weakness or nausea, bloating and a lot of gas or flatulence. Uh, your cholesterol will spike as well as your blood pressure. You'll pick up some weight, and you may have a yellow pigment to your skin. And many of these symptoms develop slowly, and a lot of people ignore them um, until, of course, you know, they got a real problem they can't ignore. All right, and what about uh, liver health and in um, uh, other countries, not just the United States? Well, according to a lot of health authorities, 50% of Canadians are overweight, and 75% of them have fatty livers. Uh, so it's not just here in America. So fatty livers are up 23% in Canada. It correlates with their obesity rate, you know. And I'm sure that high fructose corn syrup and all the refined sugars and white flours is not helping. All right, and let's look at nursing homes for a second because there seems to be several ways to make the liver pretty fatty. Uh, we mentioned malnutrition as a way, and the elderly tend to not eat very healthy, especially in nursing homes. So on the flip side of that, the elderly, um, uh, if they're given that pre-elderly uh, uh, um, nutritional intravenous type of long-term therapy, um, that produces a fatty liver. I mean, they're, they're trying to pump nu- nutrients into these um, elderly people that may have difficulty swallowing, but um, these intravenous uh, type of products for nutrition causes the liver to get fatty. Hmm. Well, let's look at this overall. So if your liver is fatty, it gets inflamed, it's vulnerable to disease, and there are really no drugs for fatty livers, but that doesn't really mean that there won't be in the future. So the effective method of reversing a fatty liver is really through permanent diet changes and regular exercise. So your liver is an important organ. You should take care of it. So your liver, this is the job that your liver has to to perform for you. It has to filter your blood, 
It has to remove toxic substances. It has to store your vitamins. It has to synthesize your cholesterol. It has to metabolize and store sugars. It has to assemble amino acids into proteins. It has to control blood fluidity and regulate blood clotting. It has to remove excess protein through the kidneys. And it has to burn fat and mix the bile for the digestive system to metabolize all your fats. Wow. Did I mention it also... Helps, you know, with hormones in the blood. Mm-hmm. So when the liver is healthy, it's really not hard to lose weight. Think about this. If the liver is fatty, the process is reversed. The liver stores more fat and you gain weight. So then other symptoms tend to follow. High cholesterol and blood pressure, obesity and diabetes. Hepatitis and cirrhosis are kind of just, you know, right around the corner. And other complications could arise like inflamed gallbladder, uh, appendicitis, or pancreatitis. So if if you um, tend to partake of the alcohol on a regular basis, you can have these complications and more. The likelihood of um, sugary and uh, the high death from sugary things, it's up there because of uh, what we're doing, especially now at the holidays. Everybody's going to be celebrating and partaking of a lot more alcohol. So, you know, kind of keep it down to two drinks, you know, if you can, limit it. Got to get a grip on that. So if, if you actually have a lot of power at trying to reverse your fatty liver di- uh, disease, if you have it, it's called discipline and control. And also you might want to have a few tools in your hand to help you out. There really isn't a quick fix. It's going to be something you have to work on. You want to avoid all the alcohol and things that convert to sugar. You want to eat healthier, uh, more organic, get more fiber and fruit and vegetables going, those lean meats, of course, along with that exercise. So you can actually layer in some cleanses uh, to help lift the cellular stress off your organs, including your liver. One of the herbs that I like and the liver likes a lot is milk thistle. Milk thistle um, has some antioxidants to help the liver replace sick cells with healthy ones, so that is a real good one to have. A barberry herb is really good to help uh, with the gallbladder, which you know kind of in sync works with the liver to get rid of the toxins, so you might want to work on the gallbladder as well just to help the liver out too. So uh, folks with fatty livers usually have low energy. Exercising can be a challenge for them. So um, let the new diet work. Uh, Get some uh, infusion of some organic uh, herbs going for uh, more energy and power. Uh, I like to use your ginsengs. I like to use use the grasses, uh, spirulina, chlorella, and the wheat grasses and things like that. This will infuse the system with a lot of energy and nutrition, and so that you can start, you know, you know baby steps, start an exercise program, but be regular with it, and you can expand on it. So if you're looking for uh, the ginseng formulas for energy, that's at thepowerherbs.com. If you're looking for the milk thistle for the liver, that's at thepowerherbs.com. The barberry bark is also there. The body food mix that has the spirulina and chlorella, they're there. And, of course, if you're not having any kind of electrolyte um, imbalance, you're good. But if you do, use the Celtic sea salt. Uh, it does not promote high blood pressure. So all those things are available at thepowerherbs.com or a phone call away, basically. Call Apothecary Herbs at 
229-3663. That's 866-229-3663, thepowerherbs.com. And uh, get empowered and save money with their Secret Santa holiday special, 20% off free ground ships through Thursday the 22nd. Uh, Thursday the 22nd is the last day for overnight ship if you need something right away because uh, they're closing early on Friday. They'll be closed at 3 p.m. Eastern, or that's 12 um, Central and, uh, I think, Pacific Coast time, right? Yeah, Pacific Coast time. So get to getting if you're needing some of that, thepowerherbs.com. Okay, we got a few minutes, so we're going to talk about some supplement secrets. Um, you know, in North America, we have like 515 million people. More than that, we're told. That's 32 people per square mile. Half the population feels they need a vitamin supplement. And the top consumers for the average supplement sold uh, at drugstores, health food stores, and Walmart are going to pregnant women and small children and the elderly. Those are the big top sellers. It, you know, and it's all the marketing hype that moves those things. And they're usually made by pharmaceutical companies, whatever they're picking out there. So, um, but, you know, a lot of people, you know, just want a good supplement, a whole food one. Uh, even though we don't see too many articles in the medical journals that, you know, say, you know, there's great benefits to your um, vitamin and mineral supplements. Um, these are categories that usually science doesn't write up too much about. But our lifestyle can put us at a lot of risk of developing serious health conditions due to a nutrient deficiency. So if you're on a low-calorie diet, if you're pregnant, if you have excessive menstrual bleeding, if you smoke, if you're an alcoholic, or if you're on a lot of prescription drugs, well, or even if you're taking recreational drugs, and, you know, you're over the age, you know, of 65, and you don't always eat so well, you know, then you're at risk of nutrient depletion. Drugs, alcohol, tobacco all affect nutrient absorption. Empty calories from alcohol and soda can hinder a healthy eating. Uh, and, and deplete us even more. So we got to change this lifestyle. We have got to add in some quality foods, organic whole foods, and organic whole supplements to make a difference. So changing the lifestyle, adding your quality supplements, two huge things you can do for yourself, and you didn't need to get a doctor's prescription for that. Um, now, a lot of prescription medications can interfere with supplements and vice versa, so you want to do your homework on that. Um, most common um, counter-regulatory warnings come from taking prescriptions like your, um, if you're mixing your supplements with these drugs, this is the, the drug category, your diabetic meds, the cancer drugs, the heart drugs, the epilepsy drugs, the seizure drugs, the prostate drugs, the blood thinning, the blood pressure drugs, the hormone replacement drugs, Parkinson's disease meds, and antidepressants. Those drugs tend not to work so well with your herbal supplements, just so you know. All right, so some of the most vital nutrients dissolve in water, uh, like your vitamin B, your vitamin C. And people say, well, so what? Well, these vitamins are not as readily stored in fat in the body, and so you have to replenish them. Uh, so your water-soluble vitamins are fragile. Um, they get destroyed by heat and by cooking. Uh, your nuts, your seeds, your green leafy vegetables, and your fruits contain this nutrition, so eat more of that. Okay, and if you are over 60, you're going to need 30% more calcium and vitamin D. So um, I like plant-based calcium. 
superior to animal-based calcium because it has the boron and magnesium mineral requirement for uptake and absorption already in there. Uh, so if you're looking at herbs for strong bones and calcium, that would be horsetail, uh, comfrey, oat straw, and lobelia. Or you can just get the calcium formula at thepowerherbs.com. Liquid, right in the body in 60 seconds. No digestion. I love liquids. I mean, the older you get, you don't want to swallow a bunch of pills. And our elderly don't like to swallow that stuff anyway. So the liquids are handy. Handy, handy, handy. Uh, so your weight, body index, you know, watch that. You've heard a lot about that. And if you're going to the doctor now, you're getting reported on to the health insurance companies with the body weight index. Uh, also, you know, if you get sick, if you get a disease, that is a nutrient buster in itself. Uh, if you get um, like gastrointestinal or, or inflamed uh, digestive diseases, that will in itself create a nutrient deficiency. Um, prescription medications uh, that block the absorption and the metabolic transport of vitamins and minerals from your foods is another problem. So um, if you're taking birth control, for instance, right, or chemotherapy drugs, or if you're smoking, you're only getting 50% of your nutrients because it's being blocked, okay? Other drugs that block absorption are their anti-seizure medicines, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, and um, chemotherapy drugs. All right, so let's look at some Superman nutrition, okay? Because we only have a few more minutes. So if you really want to superfuse the diet with some, you know, nutrients that count really quick, blueberries. Blueberries have a lot of antioxidants um, and helps fight toxins and disease. You can stack on them. Um, most places have them now year-round. Also, salmon, essential omega-3 fatty acids, going to be helpful, especially if you have a dry eye we mentioned earlier. You want some salmon. Salmon... Um, Contains all protein, vitamins and minerals, selenium, magnesium, phosphorus, zinc, vitamins A, B, D, and E. Excellent choice for superfusion nutrition into the body. You're going to need more of that if you suffer from asthma, arrhythmias, diabetes, ulcers, high blood pressures, high cholesterol, any type of inflammatory bowel disease, migraine, headaches, arthritis, and even skin problems. You're going to need more omega-3s. Also, spinach, chlorophyll and spinach, got to have that. Lots of vitamin A and K, especially if you're elderly, you need some more vitamin A. Um, tomatoes, tomatoes, lycopene, great stuff, helps the heart out. Very valuable pigment and antioxidant research on lycopene is saying lowers your risk of prostate cancer and heart disease. So, you know, tomatoes, lots of vitamin C there as well. And, of course, I love my coconut and olive, olive oil. Yes, yes, got to add that for your omega-3 fatty acids. Drizzle, drizzle that on your spinach, you know? It's great. Almonds, if you're a nut person, almonds are great, loaded with minerals, healthy fats, vitamin E, great for your heart. So uh, get some almonds going. And also oats. Uh, oats help lower cholesterol, as you've probably seen on the Cheerios box. But also I like to add garlic. Uh, natural little blood thinner, helpful for the cardiovascular, but watch it if you're taking anticoagulants. Helps also with blood sugars and immune system function. So it's very broad spectrum for antiviral, bacterial, fungal, so garlic's great. Add some of that. Strawberries, awesome. 
awesome, awesome antioxidants and vitamin C and folate in their strawberries. Uh, some people like to munch on goji berries, so if you get authentic goji berries, definitely check those out. Um, they're going to superfuse you with a lot of better carotene, more than carrots, 18 amino acids, and of course antioxidants galore. Um, but make sure you're getting the real goji berries and not the wolf berries, uh, which they're, they're the imposters, you know. So always, always get your goji from Himalayans, the monks, <laughs> while crafting. Uh, okay, so if you want some super food, uh, we do have a product called Body Food Mix, Body Foundation Food Mix, and you just it's a powder. You just add it to your smoothie, juice, or water. And it's in the system working in 60 seconds, especially if you're under a lot of stress this holiday season. You definitely want to check that out. And you'll save 20% and get free ship through Thursday on that order if you place it before the 22nd is over. Thepowerherbs.com. Take advantage of the Secret Santa special. Uh, use the code SS2016 if you're on the website. Put it in your cart. Or if you don't do Internet, just say, hey, I want the discount, the 20% off and free ship on orders of $25 or more. Just give them a call at 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. That's Apothecary Herbs. Or visit them online at thepowerherbs.com. I'm out of time. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease. Seek medical advice from a licensed medical physician if you dare before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Till next time, be well. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement.
right, friends, good evening, and welcome to the Covenanters Call. This is Pastor Mike Hoover, and we are broadcasting this evening from southern Indiana where it's cold and blustery, and we welcome you to the broadcast. Uh, I encourage you to be coming into the chat room this evening. Uh, due to some technical difficulties, we're not able to be in there, but I would encourage you to come to American Voice Radio and click on chat, give yourself a secret agent code name, and come on in there and uh, spend some time speaking with some uh, very intellectual people there. And we encourage you to do that. Appreciate those of you listening this evening on KU Band Satellite Galaxy 19 Transponder 23 Frequency 12115. And uh, we're thankful that you folks are out there. Special hello to our dear friends across the country. Uh, we appreciate you being in prayer uh, for a dear friend we've mentioned before on this broadcast by the name of Deborah. Deborah's going through some extreme physical difficulties, and uh, she would uh, appreciate your prayers this evening. Just pray that the Lord will give her the comfort and the strength that she needs to face the things that she is dealing with in her life and encourage her and use her as an example uh, of His grace and glory to those people that are around her. I encourage you as well to be praying for the folks here at Stampers Creek Historic Baptist Church. We're trusting the Lord that, Lord willing, in the spring we're going to finally be able to break ground for our new building. The Lord has given us a piece of property. Uh, we've been on it now uh, five years this past September and have been saving toward that building, and we're trusting the Lord's going to allow us to do that so that we'll have our own place to meet. We've basically outgrown uh, the old building, the old uh, primitive Baptist church building that we've been renting now for almost 10 years. Uh, it's just gotten too small, and especially when we have a meal there and fellowship together, just not much room for everybody. And so uh, we're looking for the Lord's blessing and looking for His leading this spring. We'll keep you informed uh, as to what's going on along those lines. Well, friends, it's that time of year again. And my purpose this evening is not to thump on your holiday. I would simply bring to light and to your knowledge some things about it in case you just don't know. You live in a day and time like I do of great deception. Um, there's a mental attitude today that says, let's do it because everybody else does. And I want you to know that down through history, historically and biblically, that the majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, the largest group was usually wrong. And so let's talk about it some this evening on this broadcast, Christmas. Well, friends, believe in Christmas or not, like it or not, uh, be prepared for it or not, participate in it or not, Christmas is here again. It is the inevitable, unstoppable, and most popular celebration of the year that comes every December. I remember that when I was a kid that the Christmas season didn't begin till after Thanksgiving, and it seemed like the mystical December 25th Christmas Day would never arrive. But now that I'm older, things have changed. The days, the weeks, the months go by ever so quickly, and presto, Christmas is here again. Why Christmas? Well, the majority say Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Why a Christmas season? Most will say Jesus is the reason for the season. Really? No, not really. The manger scenes, the Christmas carols, the religious activities notwithstanding. Interestingly, Christmas is not a Bible word, 
nor is it even a Bible subject. It is a historical fact that the season and day, now known as Christmas, preceded the birth of Christ by hundreds of years. Christmas was adopted from earlier heathen winter solstice celebrations celebrating the sun, including the Roman festival of Saturnalia, celebrated from December the 17th to the 24th. Celtic Yuletide, which was a 12-day long festival of feasting around November-December, the Roman New Year celebrated on January the 1st when greenery was used to decorate houses in celebration of the birth of the undying sun and presents were given to children and the poor. The Roman Catholic Church Christianized this pagan festival by substituting the birth of Christ for sun worship and called it and named it Mass of Christ. The title was later shortened to Christ Mass and the traditions celebrated at Christmas today were invented by blending together customs from paganism and many different countries. In the early 17th century, a wave of religious reform changed the way Christmas was celebrated in Europe. When Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan forces took over England in 1645, they vowed to rid England of decadence and, as part of their effort, canceled Christmas. By popular demand, Charles II was restored to the throne, and with him came the return of the popular holiday. The Pilgrims, English separatists that came to America in 1620, were even more orthodox in their Puritan beliefs than Cromwell. As a result, Christmas was not a holiday in early America. From 1659 to 1681, the celebration of Christmas was actually outlawed in Boston. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit was fined five shillings. By contrast, in Jamestown settlement, Captain John Smith reported that Christmas was enjoyed by all and passed without incident. After the American Revolution, English customs fell out of favor, including Christmas. In fact, Congress was in session on December the 25th, 1789, the first Christmas under America's new constitution. Christmas wasn't declared a federal holiday until the 26th of June in 1870. Now, the North and the South were, as we see, divided on the issue of Christmas, hmm. as well as on the question of slavery. Many Northerners saw sin in the celebration of Christmas. To these people, the celebration of Thanksgiving was more appropriate. But in the South, Christmas was an important part of the social season. Not surprisingly, the first three states to make Christmas a legal holiday were in the South. Alabama in 1836 and Louisiana and Arkansas in 1838. In the years after the Civil War, Christmas traditions spread across the country. Children's books played an important role in spreading the customs of celebrating Christmas, especially the tradition of trim trees and gifts delivered by Santa Claus. Sunday school classes encouraged the celebration of Christmas. Women's magazines were also very important in suggesting ways to decorate for the holidays as well as how to make these decorations. By the last quarter of the 19th century, America eagerly decorated trees, caroled, baked, and shopped for the Christmas season. Since that time, materialism, media, advertising, 
and mass marketing has made Christmas what it is today. The traditions that we practice at Christmas today were invented by blending together religious and secular customs from paganism and many different countries. In 1997, artist Robert Sindela drew a painting of a crucified Santa Claus. It was displayed in the window of the New York's Art Students League and received intense criticism from some religious groups. His drawing was a protest. He attempted to show how Santa Claus had replaced Jesus Christ as the most important personality at Christmas time. Well, friends, obviously, this man was correct. Should Christians celebrate Christmas? Ah, this is a question that I've been faced with many times, and folks have asked me this question on their own. How do you answer a question like that? Well, I like Charles Spurgeon on this subject because he doesn't fit easily into either of the simple pre-cut molds that tend to dominate those with strong opinions on whether Christians should even acknowledge, much less celebrate Christmas. In one corner, you have those who give a resounding no to this question. After all, the Bible does not even hint at celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ annually. Furthermore, Christmas is an adaptation of a pagan festival, and what hath light to do with darkness? In the other corner are those who seem to think that anything less than an all-out celebration of Christmas, even by those who are not Christians, is an assault on Christianity, and one more indication of how godless our culture has become. Spurgeon's views are clear that Christmas is not a biblical holiday, and so he minces no words in criticizing the attempt to equate it with vital Christianity. He sometimes ridicules and chides the observance of Christmas as a popish festival. This point of view is what is most often quoted when Spurgeon and Christmas come up. For example, on Sunday morning, December the 24th, 1871, Spurgeon preached a sermon entitled, Joy Born at Bethlehem. And he began his sermon with these words, and I quote, We have no superstitious regard for times and seasons. Certainly we do not believe in the present ecclesiastical arrangement called Christmas. First, because we do not believe in the Mass at all, but abhor it, whether it be sung in Latin or in English. And secondly, because we find no scriptural warrant whatever for observing any day as the birthday of the Savior. And consequently, its observance is a superstition because not of divine authority. Superstition has fixed most positively the day of our Savior's birth, although there is no possibility of discovering when it occurred. It was not till the middle of the third century that any part of the church celebrated the nativity of our Lord. And it was not till very long after the Western church had set the example that the Eastern adopted it. Probably the fact is that the holy days were arranged to fit in with the heathen festivals. We venture to assert that if there be any day in the year of which we may be pretty sure that it is not the day on which the Savior was born. 
It is the 25th of December. Nevertheless, since the current of man's thoughts has led this way just now, and I see no evil in the current itself, I shall launch the bark of our discourse upon that stream and make use of the fact which I shall neither justify nor condemn by endeavoring to lead your thoughts in the same direction. Since it is lawful and even laudable to meditate upon the incarnation of the Lord upon any day in the year, it cannot be in the power of other men's superstitions to render such a meditation improper for our day. Regarding not the day, let us nevertheless give thanks to God for the gift of His dear Son. End of quote. You see, friend Spurgeon had a little patience with his Protestant brethren who made much of the day out of a religious devotion. And yet Spurgeon did not think it some violation of Scripture to utilize the inevitable emphasis of the season to preach the incarnate Christ. So it's easy to find sermons on the birth of Christ that he preached around Christmas time. In December of 1855, Spurgeon preached on the incarnation and birth of Christ from Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. His opening words were these, and I quote, This is the season of the year when whether we wish it or not, we are compelled to think of the birth of Christ. I hold it to be one of the greatest absurdities under heaven to think that there is any religion in keeping Christmas Day. There are no probabilities whatever that our Savior Jesus Christ was born on that day and the observance of it is purely a popish origin. Doubtless those who are Catholics have a right to hallow it, but I do not see how consistent Protestants can account it the least sacred. However, I wish that there were ten or a dozen Christmas days in the year, for there is work enough in the world, and a little more rest would not hurt laboring people. Christmas Day is really a boon to us, particularly as it enables us to assemble round the family hearth and meet our friends once more. Still, although we do not fall exactly in the track of other people, I see no harm in thinking of the incarnation and birth of the Lord Jesus. We do not wish to be classified with those who with more care keep holiday the wrong than others the right way. End of quote. Now, in the same vein, Spurgeon preached a message on September the 25th, 1864, entitled Mary's Song, based on Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. In that message, he had this to say, and I quote, Observe, this morning the sacred joy of Mary that you may imitate it. This is a season when all men expect us to be joyous. We compliment each other with the desire that we may have a Merry Christmas. Some Christians who are a little squeamish do not like the word Merry. It is a right good old Saxon word, having the joy of childhood and the mirth of manhood in it. It brings before one's mind the old song of the waits and the midnight peal of bells, the holly and the blazing log. I love it for its place in that most tender of all parables, where it is written that 
when the long-lost prodigal returned to his father safe and sound, they began to make merry. This is the season when we are expected to be happy. My heart's desire is that in the highest and best sense, you who are believers may be merry. Mary's heart was merry within her. But here was the mark of her joy. It was all holy merriment. It was every drop of a sacred mirth. It was not such merriment as worldlings will revel in today and tomorrow, but such merriment as the angels have around the throne where they sing, Glory to God in the highest, while we sing on earth, Peace, goodwill towards men. Such merry hearts have a continual feast. I want you, ye children of the bride chamber, to possess today and tomorrow, yea, all your days, the high and consecrated bliss of Mary, that you may not only read her words, but use them for yourselves, ever experiencing their meaning. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. End of quote. Well, friends, it's been 150 years since Spurgeon preached these sermons, and Christmas continues to be a controversial subject among many Christians. Should I or should I not observe Christmas? Spurgeon was wise in concluding that since he could not cancel Christmas, he would avail himself of the opportunity of the season and the day to proclaim the incarnation of Christ. Review his words in his message. Although they weren't recorded, we can be assured that the building where Spurgeon preached was not decorated with a Christmas tree, or holly, or mistletoe, or wreaths during the Christmas season to create a Christmas spirit, as is now practiced by many churches. Christmas has been a federal holiday for a number of years, since June the 26th, 1870, as a matter of fact. In August 1998, Cincinnati attorney Richard Gnallen filed suit in the U.S. District Court claiming that, quote, Christmas is a religious holiday and the Congress of the United States is not constitutionally permitted to endorse or aid any religion, purposefully or otherwise, or entanglement between our government and religious beliefs, end of quote. Congress granted Christmas this special status in 1870 following the lead of several state legislatures. It is now one of ten government-sanctioned holidays that include birthday celebrations for Martin Luther King and George Washington and the recognition of independence on July the 4th. Nowlin argued that the establishment of the December 5th, 25th date, though effectively endorses one set of Christian religious and Christian cultural beliefs. In dismissing the suit, U.S. District Judge Susan Dlolt argued that the Christmas holiday did not violate Gnallin's right to equal protection under the law. And she added this comment. The court has found legitimate secular purposes for establishing Christmas as a legal public holiday. When the government decides to recognize Christmas as a public holiday, it does no more than accommodate the calendar of public activities to the plain fact that many Americans will expect on that day to spend time visiting with their families, attending religious services, and perhaps enjoying some respite from pre-holiday activities. Gnallin and his family have the freedom to celebrate or not celebrate the religious and secular aspects of the holiday as they see fit, 
DeLault added. The court simply does not believe that declaring Christmas to be a legal public holiday impermissibly imposes Christian beliefs on non-adherents in a way that violates the right to freedom of association. Now, Judge Dole also gave her interpretation of the Lemon Test from Lemon versus Kurtzman, which is used widely in deciding if an action by the government violates the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. She opined that Christmas has a valid secular purpose. It does not have the effect of endorsing religion in general, or Christianity in particular, and it does not impermissibly cause excessive entanglement between church and state. Unwittingly or not, Judge Lote trivialized both Mr. Nowland's case and her own ruling by including a ditty with her official written decision. Now, here's how it read. The court will address plaintiff's seasonal confusion, erroneously belief, believing of Christmas merely a religious intrusion. Whatever the reason, constitutional or not, Christmas is not an act of Big Brother. Christmas is about joy and giving and sharing. It is about the child within us. It is mostly about caring. One is never jailed for not having a tree, for not going to church, for not spreading glee. The court will uphold seemingly contradictory causes, decreeing the establishment and Santa both worthwhile clauses. We are all better for Santa, the Easter Bunny too, and maybe the Great Pumpkin, to name just a few. An extra day off is hardly high treason. It may be spent as you wish, regardless of reason. The court, having read the lessons of Lynch, refuses to play the role of the Grinch. There is room in this country, and in all our hearts too, for different convictions and a day off too. Well, friends, Christmas is not only a federal holiday. It has become an irreversible American tradition. Believe in it or not, agree with it or not, participate in it or not, Christmas is here to stay. Many American families view the Christmas season as an important time of the year to come together whether they're Christians or not. Although in recent times Christmas has become highly commercialized, Christmas is a very special time of year and many families have their own ways of celebrating this holiday. May all who know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior rejoice and proclaim, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew 1, verse 23. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 21. Grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Galatians 1, 3 through 5. These are interesting and very apropos verses to read and look at and study during this particular time of year. But one of the things that many people feel to real, fail excuse me, to realize is the fact that this Savior that is spoken of during this particular time of year is not the same Savior that 
our society sees today. They say Jesus is too much for us, some people have said. The church's treatment of the Gospels is one long effort to rescue Jesus from extremism, some have said. Well, Jesus was good. Jesus was caring. He had powerful, profound things to say. Things that would change how we view people. Things that would alter government policies and change the world. He went around helping the poor. And when confronted by those in authority, he didn't shy away from speaking truth to power. Jesus was born into a police state, not unlike the growing menace of the American police state. But what if Jesus, the revered preacher, teacher, radical prophet, excuse me, radical and prophet, most importantly the Son of God, the Savior of mankind, the only hope of eternity, what if this same Jesus had been born 2,000 years later? What if this same Jesus had been born today? How would Jesus' life have been different than had he been born and raised in the American police state? Well, in just a few minutes, we're going to take a break. And when we come back for the second half of the Covenanter's call, we're going to look, about, look at excuse me, what it would have been like if Jesus had come in our day and time. Oh, I know there are probably a number of you out there wondering, well, preacher, do you celebrate Christmas? No, I do not. I don't condemn others for doing so, but I would encourage them to compare what the Scriptures have to say. We know no idea of when Jesus was born. Um, if you follow the Old Testament and the history of it all, you realize there were two particular feasts for Old Testament Israel that were of extreme importance. That was the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets came first. It was that feast that announced the coming of that special one. The Feast of Tabernacles was representative of when that special one that was coming would tabernacle with men. If you know anything about the approximate times of the year that these feasts were celebrated, it was sometime between September and October. People say, well, what about the wise men? What about the three wise men? Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't tell us there were three. The Bible says wise men, plural. But when they finally got there, Jesus was in the house, no longer at the manger, no longer in the stable. This is the reason why the king in that day decided, in order to maintain his throne and keep himself in power, he would destroy all the children two years of age and under. And a horrific slaughter took place. We're going to take a break here, but you stay tuned for the second half of the Covenanter's Call.
just defended yourself with a gun. There were multiple assailants, and you were really concerned about your legal jeopardy and resulting media coverage. Was deadly force justified? In your town, the politics of self-defense is not favorable, but at least you're alive and your family is protected. Fortunately, you have Self-Defense Fund, a comprehensive litigation membership backing you on appeals, legal expenses, court costs, and more. Up to $1 million per incident and unlimited attorney cost per member. Discover SelfDefenseFund.com for yourself. Any weapon, any state, any time. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR 2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR 2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Welcome back to the second half of the Covenanters Call. This is Pastor Mike Hoover, and we are broadcasting this evening from cold southern Indiana. Again, we welcome you to the broadcast. Love to hear from you this week. You can write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569 North State Highway 337 in Orleans, Indiana, O-R-L-E-A-N-S, and that zip code is 47452. You can drop me an email, themuggyone at cleanenter.net. Let me spell that for you. T-H-E-M-O-G-O-L-L-O-N at C-L-E-A-N-I-N-T-E-R dot net. Or give us a phone call, that number, 812-653-5578. Let me take an opportunity to encourage you to be a supporter of American Voice Radio. Uh, especially toward the end of the year. I mean, there are always uh, tremendous financial burdens involved in running a radio network, but let Frank know how much you appreciate this broadcasting network. Be a supporter, or you've got the address if you've come to the website. You might drop something in the mail just to be an extra special blessing during this time of year. Uh, I would encourage you 
to do that. Please remember several prayer requests. First of all, remember uh, Deborah that we mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast. Also, our friend Shelby, who is recovering from some surgery. Keep her in your prayers. Also, little Helen Rose seems to be doing very well with the treatment that she's involved in. This little girl, about four years old, from our church family. And uh, looks like she's going to be having treatments uh, for well over the next year. And I know that her parents would appreciate if you would uh, continue to pray for her. Now, you're going to stay tuned after this broadcast this evening uh, for more great programming, and I would encourage you to do that as well. We've been talking about the Christmas season and what the Bible has to say about it and how authentic and whether or not it's real. And most of you, I'm sure, listening, especially to this broadcasting network, have a proper perception of of how commercialized it's become, whether or not it's the right date, which we don't believe happens to be the truth. But if it, even if it were, and it's become so commercialized. Let's talk about what it would have been like if Jesus had come in uh, to the world during this time in history. Had his ministry for three and a half odd years with his 12 disciples during this time of year. How would it have been different? Well, you know, the Christmas narrative of a baby born in a manger is familiar to just about everybody. The Roman Empire, which was a police state in its own right, had ordered that a census be conducted. So Joseph and his pregnant wife Mary, who was a virgin, contrary to what, every people, what other people may say, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. You say, how's that possible? With God, all things are possible. But Joseph, with his pregnant wife Mary, traveled to a little town called Bethlehem so that they could be counted. There being no room for that couple at any of the inns, they ended up staying in a stable where Mary gave birth to a baby boy. That boy, Jesus, would grow up to undermine the political, and most importantly, the religious establishment of his day, and was eventually crucified on the cross for your sins and mine, but as far as the world was concerned, he was crucified as a warning to others not to challenge the powers that be. However, had Jesus been born in the year 2016, and let me share some thoughts with you uh, along this line from a friend of mine, but I want you to think about these. Rather than traveling to Bethlehem for a census, Jesus' parents would have been mailed a 28-page American community survey, a mandatory government questionnaire documenting their habits, their household inhabitants, their work schedule, how many toilets they had in their home, and so on. And the penalty for not responding to this invasive survey can go as high as $5,000. Instead of being born in a manger, Jesus might have been born at home. Rather than wise men and shepherds bringing gifts, however, the baby's parents might have been forced to ward off visits from state social workers that were intent on prosecuting them for the home birth. One couple in Washington had all three of their children removed after social services objected to the two youngest being birthed in an unassisted home delivery. i got to insert a question here. How did women do it before the social workers came on the scene? Had Jesus been born in a hospital, his blood and DNA would have been taken without his parents' knowledge or their consent 
and entered into a government biobank. Now, while most states require newborn screening, a growing number are holding on to that genetic material long-term for research and analysis and purposes that yet they have not yet disclosed. Then again, had Jesus' parents been undocumented immigrants, they and the newborn baby might have been shuffled to a profit-driven private prison for illegals, or they would have been turned into cheap forced laborers for, cooper or for corporations such as Starbucks and Microsoft and Walmart. It's quite a lot of money to be made from imprisoning immigrants, especially when taxpayers are footing the bill. From the time he was old enough to attend school, Jesus would have been drilled in lessons of compliance and obedience to government authorities while learning little about his own rights. Had he been daring enough to speak out against injustice while still in school, he might have found himself tasered or beaten by a school resource officer or at the very least suspended under a school zero tolerance policy that punishes minor infractions as harshly as more serious offenses. Had Jesus disappeared for a few hours, let alone days as a 12-year-old, his parents would have been handcuffed and arrested and jailed for parental negligence. Parents across the country have been arrested for far less offenses, such as allowing their children to walk to the park unaccompanied and to play in their own front yard alone. Rather than disappearing from the history books from his early teenage years to adulthood, Jesus' movements and personal data, including his biometrics, would have been documented and tracked and monitored and filed by government agencies and corporations such as Google and Microsoft. Yes, I said government agencies. Incredibly, 95% of school districts share their student records with outside companies that are contracted to manage data, which they then use to market products to you and I. From the moment Jesus made contact with an extremist such as John the Baptist, he would have been flagged for surveillance because of his association with a prominent activist, peaceful or otherwise. Since 9-11, the FBI has actively carried out surveillance and intelligence gathering or operations on a broad range of activist groups, from animal rights groups to poverty relief to anti-war groups and other such extremist organizations. Jesus' anti-government views would certainly have resulted in him being labeled as a domestic extremist. Law enforcement agencies are being trained to recognize signs of anti-government extremism during interactions with potential extremists who share a belief in the approaching collapse of government and economy. Now, while traveling, for example, from community to community, Jesus might have been reported to government officials as suspicious under the Department of Homeland Security's See Something, Say Something programs. Many states, including New York, are providing individuals with phone apps that allow them to take photos of suspicious activity and report them to their state intelligence center where they're reviewed and forwarded to law enforcement agencies. 
Rather than being permitted to live as an itinerant preacher, Jesus might have found himself threatened with arrest for daring to live off the grid or sleeping outside. In fact, the number of cities that have resorted to criminalizing homelessness by enacting bans on camping, sleeping in vehicles, loitering and beg begging in public has doubled. Viewed by the government as a dissident and potential threat to its power, Jesus might have had government spies planted among his followers to monitor his activities, to report on his movements, and entrap him into breaking the law. Such Judases today, by the way, they're called informants, often receive hefty paychecks from the government for their treachery. Had Jesus used the Internet to spread his radical message of peace and love, he might have found his blog posts infiltrated by government spies attempting to undermine his integrity, discredit him, or plant incriminating information online about him. At the very least, he would have had his web page and website hacked and his email monitored. Had Jesus attempted to feed large crowds of people, he would have been threatened with arrest for violating various ordinances prohibiting the distribution of food without a permit. Florida officials arrested a 90-year-old man for feeding the homeless on a public beach. Had Jesus spoken publicly about his 40 days in the desert and his conversations with the devil, he might have been labeled mentally ill and detained in a psych ward against his will for a mandatory, involuntary, psychiatric hold with no access to family or friends. One Virginia man was arrested, strip-searched, handcuffed to a table, diagnosed as having mental health issues, and locked up for five days in a mental health facility against his will, apparently because his slurred speech and unsteady gait caused him to look suspicious. Without a doubt, friends, that Jesus attempted to overturn tables in a Jewish temple and rage against the materialism of religious institutions, well, then he would have been charged with a hate crime. Currently, 45 states and the federal government have hate crime laws on the books. Hmm. Rather than having armed guards capture Jesus in a public place, Government officials would have ordered that a SWAT team carry out a raid on Jesus and his followers, complete with flashbang grenades and military equipment. There are upwards of 80,000, did you hear that? 80,000 such SWAT team raids. 80,000. Can you believe that? 80,000 SWAT team raids carried out every year. Many on unsuspecting Americans that have no defense against government invaders, even when the raids are done in error. Instead of being detained by Roman guards, Jesus might have had to be made to disappear into a secret government detention center where he would have been interrogated, tortured, and subjected all manner of abuses. Chicago police disappeared more than 7,000 people into a secret off-the-books interrogation warehouse at Holman Square. This is America. And charged with a treason and labeled a domestic terrorist, Jesus might have been sentenced to life 
in some private prison where he would have been forced to provide slave labor for corporations or put to death by way of the electric chair or a lethal mixture of drugs. Either way, whether Jesus had been born in our modern age or his own, he still would have died at the hands of a police state. Jesus said there in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Hmm. Now stop and think about a few things with me if you would. Some people say, but preacher, I don't believe that stuff. I can't do that. Um, I can't have my children taught at home. Let's talk. Let's take that for an example. I got to put them in the public school. I want them to be a testimony and a witness. Show me anywhere in the Bible where the Bible teaches that we take our children that have been given to us for the sole purpose of raising and training up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and giving them to someone else to do that job and also to influence them in the direction that they, the government education system, would have them go. But I can't do that. That's the typical response of most American Christians. Oh, they're all for Christmas. Oh, yeah, remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. No, Jesus is the reason that you have a hope for eternity. And one of the problems that we have in our nation today, friends, is the fact that most American Christians respond, I can't do that, to the clear biblical command that God's people are to educate their children in an explicitly Christ-centered way each and every day. You can read Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 through 7. You see, the typical Americanized Christian response, even though they're willing to celebrate Christmas, even though they're willing to recognize the name of Jesus Christ, even though they call themselves Christians, this typical Americanized Christian response is enabled and promoted throughout our dying culture by way of our state-managed education systems, our corporate-managed pop culture, and our negligent state-licensed 501c3 church leaders thanks to a state centered view of life in general and by the way children's education in particular having been encouraged throughout the culture over generations of abdication by the church most professing Christians in America now actually believe or pretend to believe that they can't do what God has commanded and equipped his people to do in the vital life and culture the reshaping and culturing realm of their children's education. So when these people say that they can't do it, what they really mean, whether they realize it or not, is that they won't do it. You see, when it comes right down to all these issues, this time of year, educating your children, this is where I want to go for the rest of the broadcast, now that I've gotten your attention, or supposedly I have. They can do it. They can obey God. But the bottom line is this, they won't. 
And since their local church leaders tend to merely echo rather than confront and correct what they hear from more overtly pagan sources sprinkled throughout the secular culture, then they've grown very comfortable in not doing what God has clearly and lovingly commanded them to do. By the way, when you don't do what God tells you to do, that's defined as sin in the Bible. You see, American Christianity has become so comfortable in their rebellion that they tend to lash out at those who dare attempt to confront and correct their anti-Christian approach to children's education in accordance with the gospel. So what are these American Christians really so afraid of? Well, many things, actually. For one, they're afraid of losing many things they hold dear. They're afraid of giving up things that our paganized culture and corporations and churches tell them that they deserve. Well, that's a big word today, isn't it? That's what this whole season is about. I want this. I want a new one of these. I deserve it. So before we get into our list of ten examples of these things, let's be plain about two simple, obvious, yet often religiously ignored realities. Number one, the economic factors often quickly remembered as reasons why someone can't do what God commands with regard to their children's education are 90-plus percent of the time a matter of choice and not necessity. The vast majority of those who claim that they can't obey God because of this or that economic constraint are, in fact, living in a way that does allow for the radical downsizing or lowering of certain housing, auto, vacation, cable, TV, Internet, whatever you want to call it, options, in a way that would make all of the necessary economic space. And number two, in those instances where there's a real economic constraint beyond the ability of, say, a widow or a similarly challenged person to navigate, then it is the duty and obligation of family and church to step in, step up, and take care of it. Obviously, I'm referring to the Lord's true church, the supernaturally saved and empowered Lord's true church, in stark contrast with the weak, phony counterfeits littering the landscape. Each of those which tend to excuse and validate and even support the satanic model of Christians' education rather than confronting it as they're commanded to do in accordance with the gospel and the Great Commission. Just think with me of how many so-called churches with gigantic facilities and ornate furnishings and huge staffs of professionals are financing, financing those buildings and furnishings and salaries by enabling and promoting the American dream model of success, which is built upon the modern pagan approach to kids' education, over and above the gospel and the Great Commission. You see, the reason most of these quote, churches, end of quote, won't confront this issue in accordance with the Word of God, is that they, listen to me, are personally enriching themselves and building their little Christian empires through the promotion of a satanic model of the pursuit of knowledge. By the way, who needs the Aztecs or ISIS or a gang of Satanists to do the child sacrifice thing when we have an American church like this? Let me give you ten things very quickly Americans won't sacrifice to save their children from public schools. Are you ready for this? But this will end up our broadcast today. I've only got a few minutes. Got to hurry. Comfort. Number one's comfort. As Americans who've been raised in a state-centered socialistic culture for generations now, we're very comfortable giving our children up to state-certified professionals to do our work for us. It's the norm. 
Why rock the boat, especially when by just doing that, our pagan state, corporate and church cultures, tell, by doing what they tell us, we can have so much of what we so naturally and so selfishly desire, like number two, ease. Oh yeah, this is a biggie. How much easier can it get than just standing off to the side and handing your kids over to the state for education? Number three, time. We need our me time, right? Don't you know? We need our hobby time. We need our TV time. We need our rest. The sheer amount of time that would be taken up in obeying the Lord and loving our children in educational practice is just not something that we as Americans are inclined to give up. No, mm -mm, not at all. And since our 501c3 state certified pastors won't push us to do so, why even think about it, right? How about number four? Nicer than necessary automobiles. Nicer than necessary automobiles. You see, the vast majority of those who claim that they can't obey God and love their children in accordance with Scripture on the subject of education could get away with driving a much less luxurious car or cars than they are driving now. Number five, bigger and or better than necessary home or homes. The thought of voluntarily transitioning down from a nice home in the suburbs to maybe a mobile home or a humble rental elsewhere, for the sake of honoring God and loving our children in educational practice, isn't something that we as Americans are known for. Quite the contrary, even the proposition of such a material downgrade for the sake of educating children in accordance with Scripture is the sort of thing that will more often than not inspire shocked stares of incredulity from those on the state-sanctioned path of children's education. Number six, more and or nicer than necessary vacations. We have to go to the beach, right? Or Disney World or the country fair or the state fair. These are necessities, but Christ-centered education for our children? Ah, eh, not so much. Number seven, more and or nicer than necessary stuff. Got to have that HDTV, video games, motorcycles, boats, computers, smartphones, high-quality clothes, jewelry, digital cable, high-speed internet, and decent food, decent grooming. We've got to be able to take our pets to the vet, right? But Christ-centered education? Nah. Number eight career advancement opportunities. How else are we going to get more and more cool stuff and bigger and better houses and longer, more luxurious vacations if we don't sacrifice what we need to sacrifice, like our children's Christ-centered education, in order to advance our careers? Number nine, social perception. Have you seen the way most Americans view and treat those families crazy and or dedicated enough to actually do what needs to be done to personally provide an explicitly Christ-centered education for their children. Even most churches tend to be made uneasy when these folks show up, which should be no surprise considering the way that most churches are openly opposed to Christ's clear commands on the subject of children's education. Number 10. 
effort. Doing hard and challenging things like educating your children requires effort. Lots of effort. Lots and lots of effort. Lots and lots and lots of effort. Which, friends, is reason enough for not fitting in with the modern American and modern American church approach to things. Add in the fact that in many instances you might have to give up the other nine things that we've listed. And you can see why Christ-centered children's education is something that repulses most Americans and most American churches. Only the true, undiluted, everything-touching gospel can change all this. Which, by the way, friend, you'll not find in or near most American churches these days, which seem to be on every other street corner in a culture rocketing to hell before our eyes. I wonder if there could be a connection there. This is the Covenanters Call. I'd love to hear from you this week. You can write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569, North State Highway 337, in Orleans, Indiana, 47452. My phone number, 812-653-5578. Or drop me an email, themuggyone at cleaninter.net, T-H-E-M-O-G-O-L-L-O-N at C-L-E-A-N-I-N-T-E-R dot N-E-T. Friends, stay tuned for more great programming here on American Voice Radio. And good Lord willing, the next time we share the Covenanters call with you will be in the new year of 2017. God bless you all, and have a great evening. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. You just defended yourself with a gun. The police are called and you're potentially involved in a homicide. 
It was self-defense. At this point, you are not in your right mind. No one ever is when they are in fear for their life and defend themselves. Anything you say can will be used in a court of law, both civilly and criminally. Fortunately, you have SelfDefenseFund.com. We are the National Association for Legal Gun Defense, and we protect our members nationally in all 50 states, up to $1 million per incident per member. Let us do the talking for you and visit SelfDefenseFund.com. Any weapon, any state, any time. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. For Tuesday, 20th day of December, year of our Lord, 2016, continuing in our continuing battle against the evil forces of uh, big government, progressive thinking, Frank and I wage an unending war against the evildoers. Frank being my co-host, of course, and I'll introduce him in a moment. First, my disclaimer. One, I'm a man made in God's image, as per Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Two, I'm endowed by my creator with certain unalienable rights, as per the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. Three, I'm one of the people of the state of Texas, a member state of the Perpetual Union style, the United States of America. Four, I've repeatedly pledged my allegiance to the United States of America. Five, I'm broadcasting within the borders of the state of Texas. Six, I'm acting at arm's length. Seven, I deny that I've voluntarily agreed to act as fiduciary or surety for the government of the United States. Having said said all of that, plus I have a rabbit's foot and a four-leaf clover, I'm now good to go. Frank... Stefan is the co-host. He's also the principal behind American Voice Radio. Hello, Frank. How are you doing? Howdy, Al. I thought you were going to mention Darth Vader or something there for a minute. I couldn't think of him. Oh, okay. Well, he was before my time anyway. These things happen. Mm-hmm. 
What's new, oh, Frank? Well, <laughs> you really want to know? Well, it depends. Oh, well, you know, the ongoing uh, letter thing with the IRS continues, and now, uh, you know, it's it's amazing how things work out because uh, we had a guest on his last, I don't remember his first name, his last name was Ellis. Michael Ellis. Okay, and he was talking about the, uh, you know, how they go about making out returns for people. Yeah. And how it's wrong, the way they do it. Mm-hmm. Well, now, that's the that's the stage I'm at with uh, my, as you put it, ongoing battle with the dark mm-hmm. forces of the federal government. Uh, sure. And that's where we're at right now. So, you know, I'm really uh, uh, thankful to have the opportunity to, you know, and you listeners had the opportunity also. And you had the opportunity to, you know, grab the uh, the file for your reference. Uh, information that is going to end up helping me. Yeah. You know, so it's, uh-huh. not, it's not all entertainment. As entertaining as we are. And the, <laughs> the problem, we, it would be more entertaining if people could see the juggling. That's you true. know, we do a great job of juggling and knife throwing. Uh, knife throwing, yeah, very good at knife say, throwing, but it's very it, impressive. You just can't get it. You just hear that funk, and you don't see the knife, and it, it doesn't work on radio the way it works on TV. Yeah, and you should see all these chainsaws being juggled. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right, well, let's take a look at, I don't know, which one do we want to start with? <laughs> yeah, here's a good one. Number 14 on the list of, uh, on the list of, Articles that we can refer to. You got that one? I'm getting there. <laughs> this is from the Associated Press. The way you were laughing, I thought this was from the National Enquirer or something. Well, it kind of is. Okay. It's Associated Press, but it still kind of is the National Enquirer. <clears throat> um, okay. The headline is, Man Wins Okay to Wear Goat Horns. In driver's license photo. Are you there? I am. I see that, and I'm opening it up. It's one that actually will work. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that's nice. That They see, you see? I was, uh, the reason I did this is I wasn't sure. I, Frank and I have never met face-to-face, so I'm not sure what he looks like. So I was, is this you, Frank? <laughs> no, no, although he has quite a nice mustache. But, uh-huh. You see, this is one of those things like knife throwing and uh, juggling chainsaws on the radio. It just doesn't mm-hmm. just to see this picture here. Uh, it really says a lot. <laughs> is this a great country or what? I mean, the man, he's, he's got goat, hair, goat horns fastened to his forehead. This is real. I don't even this know This isn't how. just some joke. This is real. I mean, right? he has he's got goat hair horns fastened to his forehead, and he had to get... A judicial okay for him to wear the goat horns in his driver's license photo. <laughs> so, just in case there's any people out there in the audience, you want, you like wearing goat horns, and you feel that you're being deprived of your right to wear goat horns, well, here's a step in that direction. I mean, if we can do it for transgenders, I guess we can do it for people who want to wear goat horns. Oh, man, you know, I almost thought, when it said Portland, Maine, I thought, aha, uh-huh. but no, it's not Portland, Oregon. See, this is something I would, this is something I would expect out of Oregon, honestly, but Maine. Well, does I, that mean you have kind of a 
Uh, does that mean your opinion of Oregon is not as high as some people might suppose? Or? Uh, the, I, I love Oregon. I love Southern Oregon. Put it that way. Yeah. But the judiciary, the politics are all controlled by the North. And uh, no, I don't appreciate it. It's a communist stronghold up there. And, you know, we down here in the South, we uh, of Oregon, we're just basically good to pay taxes. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's all they want mm -hmm. from us. Uh, Human resource. Yeah, that's it. Just send that yeah. money and shut the hell up. Mm -hmm. that's, that's their attitude towards Southern Oregon. You know, and uh, they got to, every once in a while, they'll, all right, squeeze some money out of them so they can waste it, you know, messing around with some exit somewhere, that the never-ending uh, road construction, because the exit somehow wasn't good enough. And now, <laughs> they built an exit here. They, they, You know, when I go by these signs, it makes me mad every time. It's like rubbing your face in it. They got these big signs on the highway. Your tax dollars at work! And then you come up to this nightmare, worthless exit to where they, you know, they you get off there and they got you driving the wrong way even. It's just crazy. And they spend tons of money on it. but And they do this like... Oh, see, we got some money from the north, you know, and they don't really use it for anything decent or anything. So, no, this is the kind of ruling, you know, this is the state that says, hey, you have to teach, you know, you have to teach Mexicans in Mexican. You have to have, we yeah, have, I understand. Bi That's we have, important. have bilingual teachers because, you know, that that would be denying them of their right to an education. Yeah, I understand. Like, what? What? This is it, and, and you know. How about denying them their right to pay for the teachers? How about denying? That, them I guess right that's your right, though, isn't it, Frank? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You they know. don't want to deprive you of the right to pay for the teachers sure. to uh, teach Mexicans in, in Spanish. Well, you know, everybody's pretty much against Common Core and Goals 2000 and all that. Well, bad news. It started here. It was called outcome-based education, and it was a big nightmare here. It's still a big nightmare here. And, uh, hey, they passed it around the country. This is the uh, Petri dish of social, you know, experimentation here in Oregon. That's what they well, do. Well, you get that. to see it first. Yeah, that's you right. You know, while the rest of us are wondering how it works out and what kind of a what kind what of are they a screw do to me this next? is going to be, you know, <laughs> yeah. you guys are the first to say, oh, my God. This is what you can expect. Yeah, that's right. Here Listen, the one thing I wanted to say about this 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 picture of this guy wearing goat horns, and they are they're stylish goat horns. You know, it's not like he's got a big set of these things that are several feet long. He's just wearing a couple of goat horns. They look to be about four, maybe five inches each. You know, that uh, kind you of know. stylish. I'm thinking we could send this article. You may want to do this, Frank, uh -huh. uh, to all the judges in Oregon, <laughs> because if you can wear goat horns when you're getting your driver's license. Seems to me that the that the judges should be able to wear goat horns while they're sitting on the bench. Ah, uh, maybe should be mandatory just to give everybody should, the maybe right. Maybe so. Idea. I, I don't know. Maybe you want to float that. Uh, get your car. Get your state representative or state senator and uh, say, hey, let's make all the. Hey, how about? <laughs> 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 it could be instead of having a, a a membership card for the for the state bar, you could just wear goat horns instead. How about that? I, I'm liking it. But, uh, you know, it, it reminded me of something else when you said what's new, what else is new. I uh, I actually have started to contact the uh, <laughs> representatives here in Oregon, and I sent them a uh, a questionnaire. 
an inquiry uh, concerning how is it exactly that you can require payment in anything but gold and silver? Yeah. You know, and I went through some systematic questions that kind of, you know, how you kind of build a case by, okay, mm-hmm. you ask this and then you ask that and they build upon each other. I did that with the questions, so it wasn't as simple as I just made it on, on the radio. But, you know, I, I don't want any wiggle room mm-hmm. because these guys are not honest people and they don't want to answer this. And mm-hmm. I don't know what they're going to answer. It's been a week and they haven't an- nobody's answered yet. Uh, the IRS, at least, is very timely in their responses. I can say that, but the state of Oregon, not so much. But I sent it to my uh, state senator, my state representative, and those are the actual guys that I want the answer from because uh, those of you out there thinking about doing the same thing, the the natural idea, at least for me, was to, well, I'll just send it to the you know, uh, Secretary of State and the Attorney General's office here in Oregon. They ought to know. I mean, you know, the attorney general is the state's lawyer. That They ought to know. Yep. Well, but just because they ought to know doesn't mean they ought to tell you what they know. Oh, they won't even. You know what they told me? They said, uh, we don't work for you. We work yeah. for the state. Oh, okay. So I contact. That's why I That's contact. very interesting. That's a very interesting admission because... <laughs> Uh, Texas versus White, White versus Texas, I don't remember, but after the Civil War, they defined the state as including the people. And that would be the states of the Union. Well, I think and he says he doesn't work for you, and that's probably true. He's making a profound admission. He doesn't work for you. Right? He's working for this state, an entirely different entity. That, they, they told me, both of them told me that in writing. They tell you in writing? Yeah. In writing? Yeah, I have it somewhere in a in a file cabinet somewhere. That was years ago. So this time when I started again, I knew okay, don't ask them because they're just gonna you know they're just gonna say hey we don't we don't work for you. So I learned back then that if you want anything from them, you have to go through your senator or your representative, and then they submit it to them, and they're supposed to answer them. Because that is supposedly who they work for, is the governor's office and the state legislature. That's what they told me. And uh, so that's what I did. And I also copied my, you know, federal congressmen and senators. So we'll see what and they so, say. And, and since then, do you hear any funny clicking on your <laughs> when you're on your phone line or anything like that? <laughs> yeah, I, well, yeah, but that started like 15 years ago. Yeah, they had already done that. <laughs> you know, so now you get more clicking, I more keep, better you know, clicking. And I keep screaming it in the phone, would you please upgrade your equipment? But, you know, I guess they're waiting. Would you please pay more taxes? Yeah. This equipment costs money, Frank. Yeah, I know. And stop People like you that are keeping the government broke. No, I think money it's money to spy on the public. Yeah, well, that's a hard sell, seeing as how the Pentagon has misplaced $9 trillion since 2001. Yeah, I, hate, I, I just hate when that happens. Nine trillion dollars, you know. Like I've said before, it must have fallen off somebody's desk and landed in the in the waste paper basket. You know, they ought to do like cleaning lady probably threw it in the trash by accident. Well, they ought to do what everybody else does and go through their couch. It's probably in the cushions. There. It might be. You yeah, know, that's it might where, be in the cushions. That's where uh-huh. I find everything. I uh, check your trousers too. You know, I, I sometimes I am accused of laundering. Money because sometimes I leave a you know a twenty dollar bill in my pants and you throw it in the washing machine it comes out it's a little bit fainter than it was when it went in you know 
So I've I've been laundering money every once in a while. Maybe they're doing the same thing. Gosh, you probably washed off all that cocaine residue off those bills. Oh, it might be safer to use it now. I think that's actually laundering money. Might are you? They charge you with laundering money to defend yourself. She said, "Judge, I had to launder it to get rid of the cocaine." That's right. <laughs> hey, you know what? We have a caller. Oh, my gosh. This early in the program? I don't know how people keep getting this number, but... Where did we go wrong? (laughs) Go ahead, caller. Gentlemen, again, I hope not to take up too much of your time, but you just touched on a couple of things. And, Al, uh, I'm in correspondence with David Bow, who I know you know well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if Frank pulls me off the air in a little bit, I can give you the number. You might want to get him on because he just touched on this taxation subject. You jumped on that. And I'm I'm back and forth with him in emails over a court case I'm involved in that you guys know a little bit about. And he just touched on something and sent me a link to an organization called LostHorizons.com that may touch on the reason why they told Frank that they work for the legislature, because in another email he sent me earlier today concerning a driver license issue, he's swearing to God that no, there's no way that the Constitution has anything to do with a DL licensing scheme. I can read you his email that it is purely... You're talking about David Baugh's making these comments. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's purely, he's saying it's a civil penal issue and that it's a creature of the legislature, and that uh, as far as being deprived due process during my case um, and being railroaded, uh, he's swearing that it's got nothing to do with the Constitution whatsoever because he's saying it's a creature of the legislature. It's a taxation creature, and that might answer the question, Frank. Is, is just touched on is why they say they're working for the state or the. Well, here's another point on this business about I don't work for you, I work for the state. Mm-hmm. The relationship between the employer and the employer and the, and the employee is a trust relationship. And the way it always works is the employer is the beneficiary of that relationship and the employee is the trustee, the fiduciary. Now, the point is, is if these people, Frank, are talking about, when they tell you that they don't work for you, they're saying, you're not my beneficiary. I have no obligation to deal on your behalf. But if you can come up and explain to them, look, I'm one of the people of the, or at least I, from my perspective, I've tried this on one occasion and I didn't get any comment on it. I think ultimately we had a happy ending out of this. But I told him, one, I'm one of the people of the state of Texas. I am a beneficiary of the Constitution of the state of Texas. And as an administrator, as a fiduciary, an officer of that state of Texas, you are a fiduciary required to administer that trust on my behalf. I am a beneficiary of the Constitution. When he says we don't work for for you, he's revealing something. He said, I don't have an obligation. You're not my beneficiary. I don't have an obligation to do anything for you. Now, this is a profound statement. This is an admission that can be explored at least to find out if what I'm saying is correct. But under in the State of the Union, we the people are the employers, we are the beneficiaries, and the government is our fiduciary, and they are there to serve us. If he's not, if you're not his, if he doesn't work for you, you don't get any benefit out of him. Well, I can tell you, 
you probably, and you'll have to give, incidentally, you'll have to give David a call. He's got no long distance. He's, you know, we're all relatively on Main Street out here. We've taken a beating, so I'll have to leave you a number. And if you were able to give him a call, you, you guys may be able to get together, have him on your Why show. Why don't you send us, a, send us an email? Awesome. Because the only thing I use is Skype, and if he doesn't have Skype, I can't call him on a regular phone. Oh, okay. Well, that I, I don't know about, but I do know... Send us his email address. He respects you immensely, and even in his email, because I said I went into it with information and went into it with, uh, you know, declaring uh, status and, and, and dispelling presumptions and coming in claiming I'm one of the people and all that sort of thing, and he just vehemently disagrees that it's got anything to do with anything when you're involved in a taxation scheme. And then, of course, that lost horizons. He seems to be directing me that, that area, and he's trying to get me to appeal this case via taxation schemes, uh, uh, the way that it's written. And I don't understand, and I'm not even going to tell you that I, I understand it, but he's got a blog, and, and, I, and when I got to this taxation scheme and a creature of the legislature, I was totally lost, but... Basically, what he's telling me is when you step into the court over a driver license issue, you, the Constitution, as they've stated before, ha they don't want to hear it in their courtroom or, or under some circumstances. And granted, they're sitting between two law merchant admiralty maritime flags, and that may have something to do with it. Who knows? And granted, um, the citation I got was everything was in all capital letters and that kind of thing, sort well, of indicating they're some kind of agency or corporate court or you something. Know, and so. you, we have to also consider, though, the fact that when you have a driver license, you have signed up what Al and I believe is a pledge, and you pledge, okay, I'm going to follow the rules of, uh, you know, whatever it says in the code that I'm supposed to do. You and know, they ask you, in Texas, they ask you, when you make that application, you agree to be bound by the rules of the road. Right, so you're agreeing for rules of the road are not the rules of the Constitution or rules of the State of the Union. This is something else. Well, my point is, and you've agreed to it. Yeah, anytime you end up in court, you know, at least at preliminary anyway, unless you do something, uh, it's an administrative court because it's not a law court. It is not. I found that out because, the, the, you know, when I said, well, hey, listen, is this a, uh, is this a civil case or is this a criminal case? <laughs> and he told me, uh, well, it's a uh, proceeded, uh, it's a civil case proceeded under the criminal rules. And right away I knew, well, that's nothing. That That's not any kind of form of law. It, it has to be administrative because you yeah. agreed to put yourself under the administration of those laws. They've created a court that looks like other courts. And you go in there, and you're not, you don't have any of the Article Three sort of, uh, you know, or whatever article it is in your state, judicial court rights. Article you're Five in, in Texas. You're in an administrative hearing, regardless of where you are. You know, uh, obviously, if you're in a municipal court, that's easy to see. Well, this is an administrative court. But even if you are in the county and they bring you into the district court, just because it's the district courthouse. Doesn't and, and, and you know, and that guy has sat as a district judge. Doesn't mean he's doing that for you. That's right. Yeah, and I'll tell you though, they give us lip service, and, and and what I don't understand, and of course, when I presented the court and and, and the judge told the prosecutor to answer my bill of particulars, and those type questions were in it. 
And of course, when they looked at it, of course they cannot. They'll, you know, they'll, they'll show their cards. They, they cannot answer my questions, which was the exact approach that Al uh, uh, put forth. So, what do you think uh, that, that means? You, what does that mean if they can't answer your questions? If they can't well, or won't answer your questions, they, what's your argument? Well, if they can't show, if they won't show me their hand and admit that it's an administrative court of some sort. Uh, they just can't show their hand. And so, as a result, they just don't answer the questions, even though the judge... Which means what to you? Them. I'm sorry, say that again? What does that mean to you? How does that change your legal position, and what do you, what do you think is perhaps the next thing you might want to do? You're well, being denied you procedural due process, in my opinion. They have an obligation when they send you a notice, in my opinion, all right, don't believe it because you hear it from me, but they send you a notice, you are entitled to ask questions. You can bet that under at the bottom of virtually any of the notices you're going to get from the government, they say, if you have any further questions, please dial 1-800-555-1212 or whatever number they've got there. They make proviso. If you have any questions, you can ask them. You ask them in writing, and they don't want to answer the questions. I believe, and I can't prove it, but I believe believe that the notice is not complete until you have had all your questions answered and if they don't answer your questions you are being denied procedural due process then which consists of notice and opportunity to be heard the opportunity to be heard in my opinion is probably the administrative tribunal but the notice is not complete until you fully understand what the and you have no further questions if they don't Absolutely. answer your questions, you're being denied procedure. You're being denied sufficient notice, in my opinion. Take it with salt. Don't believe it because you heard from me. But in my opinion, you are being deprived of sufficient notice, and therefore they can't take you, arguably. My argument is they can't take you to the opportunity to be heard. The opportunity I to be heard agree. is like taking you out in a room and saying, all right, go ahead and scream your lungs out, and you've got 30 seconds to it, and then we're throwing you back in the cell. I don't want an opportunity to be heard. I want I What I want is a judicial trial. You want to take me to just a judicial court? Let's go. You want the opportunity to be heard? Buzz off. I don't want to participate in that. Does that make any sense to you? 100% because that's exactly what I'm doing in court and was completely deprived. I mean, this thing got ugly. I, I called in two weeks ago and told you how ugly it got when I started demanding procedural due process so that they mm -hmm. answer my questions and the judge ordered the prosecutor to answer my questions and he didn't. And when I started demanding, the judge went off the rails and yeah. screaming and hollering at me and, and menacing me with the bailiffs. And what do you make of that? Dale, what do you make of that? What do you make of the judge's well, conduct? David, now I'm so confused because he's stating that I'm not entitled to any due process at all, but why would it... Well, oh, and he said that on the record? He said it expressly or he said it... Or he, did he say it expressly or did he say it by implication? No, I don't know about David wrote me an email. All I know is what I'm doing in court. I don't know I don't know that I've never been in any court procedure with David, so I don't know. Hey, he's just writing me in an email and I don't I get, get it. So I'm anyway. understanding you to say that when you began to raise this issue of procedural due process yeah. And the requirement that the prosecutor and or the, the police or whoever gave you the notice in the first place have to answer your questions, that when you insisted on this, the judge went ballistic. Am I understanding yeah. correctly? 
ballistic. I'm talking frothing, seething, popping eyes, what jumping does that out of the I don't, uh, that he's a... Well, wait, I'll tell you what it tells me. It tells me that this is right, that the theory is probably correct. We may not have all the details worked out, but it, if you can get that reaction out of the judge, it's evidence that the judge doesn't look at you as some, <laughs> some idiot with his tinfoil hat coming into the courthouse, and we're, we're going to have to straighten this guy out. He's, he understands there's a problem here. Oh, no, no, I, I think he I, understands. That's the way I'd interpret it. It doesn't mean that's true, but that's the way I'd interpret I, I've got it. I mean, this is evidence that the idea works. With the uh, timing of this. Now, you said that the uh, the judge ordered the prosecution to answer your bill of particulars. Yep. Okay. First, now, why would he, wait, I, wait, did he go crazy before or after they didn't answer? Okay, ho hold on, hold on. The first three appearances, and he kept telling the prosecutor and continuing, that judge recused himself the, the fourth time. Now, I'll tell you why. There's a little bit more to it. I kept demanding, mo I kept filing motions, all kinds of motions, to, to strike judge enter plea, uh, withdrawal plea, you know, all kinds of things, because, of course, they tried to railroad you right away, and I, I, I by affidavit and by verbally, uh, during the layman, of course, I uh, uh, dispelled the presumptions that, uh, you know, I, I came in as a uh, Genesis 128 man. However, three times it went around, the prosecutor's doing nothing, and the judge recused himself, and it got handed to a, a new judge. And I walked into the room. He didn't look at the record. I walked in the courtroom. He started immediately scheduling it for trial, and I attempted. I said, look, I'm here under special appearance, threat, arrest, coercion, intimidation, threats of violence, and he immediately triggered him. It immediately triggered him. And from there, it went way, it, uh, it turned into a literal screaming match, but I walked out of the room simply because I committed no crime. I was just demanding due process, yet he still set it for trial. Three weeks went by. It was last Thursday, and uh, and I and I was telling you guys that this particular judge and the prosecutor that selected in the county, I had sued them back in 2005 because they mm. were posing in another little town as judge and prosecutor without oath, no clerk of courts, no file stamp, no nothing, no city uh, charter. It's just a neighborhood, and they yep. just. Then a highwayman out that pulled me in, and they had an eight-foot table set up in the community building, and that was the court, and there was nothing to file paperwork, challenge, nothing. So I had to sue him in federal district court. Well, I never brought the thing to complete fruition because, you know, it was probably 10 years ago, 11, 12 years ago. But anyway, here it is, the same prosecutor and judge, although reversed roles. Now the one that was playing the judge is now the actual elected prosecutor elected prosecutor because he has assistance and then the guy that's playing the judge was playing prosecutor back in that little neighborhood so i immediately demanded he set the case down over bias and, and because he was completely emotionally and mentally unstable i mean 50 people were just in awe and so was i but i kept my composure because i knew it was right and he threatened me five or six times with with false imprisonment he wouldn't tell me to shut up. He wouldn't. They never used the word contempt. Never warned me of contempt. Just went into this frothing, screaming rage. So much so that an assistant prosecutor was in the room, and he asked her, "Is there? You know, they have those laptops, and they're watching. You know, looking at your prior. 
And he asked her if there was any reason they could keep me there until the trial in jail. And she finally jumped up and said, she screamed at him to back him off and screamed, no, 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 at the judge. And, he, and But still, when I objected again to him setting it for a trial date, and again without having due process, because what happened, I should add, is in the interim of the one judge setting the case down, they had mailed me a letter that went to the wrong place, and they had, did, they had done a docket entry, a case docket entry, and they, they, they scanned the, the return to sender letter back to the prosecutor, put it in the court record, which proves beyond a shadow of a doubt I never received a motion hearing because it was a letter letting me know when the motion hearing was. However, there had already been another court hearing, but they tried to slip this motion hearing in between when the next court hearing was scheduled, and, and I never got the letter. So I was absolutely deprived due process, yet the judge is setting it for trial. So my objections were for obvious reasons, and he just went ballistic. And then, of course, the same, and I told him, set the case down, you're not going to hear it, I sued you. And he was real concerned over that because he, he said, I'm going to be the trial judge. And I said, I object, you're going to set the case down because, you know, due to conflict of interest and obviously you're emotionally and mentally unstable. And I, I was saying this stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I mean, we went at it in court and the elected prosecutor sat, sat stiff as a board staring at the wall, wouldn't come to my aid. The assistant tried to, to get him to back off and he never said contempt of court or anything. And at that point, when I kept objecting that he was setting it for trial, he screamed and hollered me that I had 20 seconds to get out of his courtroom and I'd better show up or he'll put an arrest warrant out for me. So I showed up at trial and immediately launched in the threat to arrest, coercion, intimidation, lack of due process, and you're not permitted to be the judge, and I don't consent to the court, I don't consent to the court moving forward, I don't consent to this judge, nothing. And we started going back and forth, and then he started asking me, and I looked up that case in 2005, and I can't find why. It just happens I've got the document proving that that case happened. Here He was trying to get out of the middle, saying that he could be the judge. He wanted to be the judge so he could bury me. And uh, he starts dancing around that on the record. Now, of course, I demanded that we were on the record immediately. As a matter of fact, I approached the prosecutor before the hearing, before the trial, and I said, look, you know what's going on here, and I don't want a confrontation with this judge. And, and that dirty little dog twisted my words immediately and said, you want a confrontation with the judge? One of those type people. And I was just shocked, and I said, you, you heard me. I said, I'm trying to avoid a confrontation with the judge. He says, it's going to trial right now. And that was it. They lost me in there. And, and down it went. And slam dunk, choo-choo, railroad, the whole shooting match. And, it didn't, and I probably objected 20 times. And I probably, Good. oh, at least objected uh, and, and just countered every single thing they tried to do. But still, I was convicted. So, of course, I filed criminal complaints on these guys during the course of this whole thing. I mean, that judge threatened me with bodily harm and, and false imprisonment uh, in the prior hearing when I tried to stop him and get him to set the case down. So I literally filed criminal complaints with the attorney general, but the sheriff won't touch it. The attorney general, when I called them, they said, we're not touching it. So we've got a problem with the bar. Now, David 
balls still telling me it doesn't matter. You have no right to procedural due process. And I'm back and forth with David saying, why would they even bring you into a judicial setting and play? It's not judicial. I would be surprised if it's judicial. But and that procedural due process, I don't, I don't understand that to be a judicial due process. I think substantive due process occurs in the judicial setting. I, I think, but I can't prove well, it. Could be wrong. You know that. Procedural due process is primarily associated with administrative. The courts have ruled over and over and over again consistently that even in administrative hearings, there has to be due process. So it doesn't matter if it's a taxing scheme or if it isn't a taxing scheme, whether it's uh, administrative or or judicial. You you still get due process. Due process is never waived unless you... Sign and say something like, oh, okay, I agree to binding arbitration or something like that. That's You could give away your due process rights that way. Oh, that well, should not happen. What are they trying to do here? Right. They should know. They should know that they can't get away with depriving you of procedural due process. They can't do it. And from what you're telling me, they virtually admitted on the record that you're not going to get it. Now, if they've only done that by implication, that's one thing. But even then, uh, if you didn't get procedural due process, the court loses jurisdiction, or at least that's what I've been led to believe. Now, exactly. So why would they do this? If we are correct, if we're correct in the way we're we're looking at this, or at least the way I'm looking at it, if I'm correct in the way I'm looking at this, why would the court? The court has to know they can't get away with depriving you of procedural due process. So That's why did they do it? I ordered the prosecutor to answer my bills, you know, my questions, and they never did. I mean, they're paying. I understand, but why did they deny you procedural due process? Assuming we're correct and we're, the way we're thinking about this is correct, why do you well, think I they deprived you procedural due process? I, I, I even, I don't know how many times, but probably five times, I said, look, I was never even noticed for a motion hearing. You can't move forward without giving me procedure. He didn't care. All right, right but why? If, he, if we're correct, if we're correct, and he's going to lose this case, it's going to be reversed on him. Uh, on an appellate level, where he understands that, look, he can't really do this. He has to know that if you're persistent and you take this up on appeal, you're going to win the appeal and the case is going to be reversed or remanded. Why did he do it? And I'm asking David Bowser. I said, look, these are serious constitutional. I mean, geez. I, mean, I know, I know, but you know, here's, what, here's my guess. I have no right? Right to do and the guess is perhaps predictable, given that I, had, that I, that I believe in this, this right of inquiry strategy and the rest of that sort of thing. I think he would rather be overturned at the appellate level than answer your questions. What other explanation remains for why did he do something that, if we're correct, is obviously intolerable? He can't get away with this if you can appeal this properly. He's going to be reversed on appeal. How can he get away with depriving you of procedural due process? And the answer is he can't, but he'd rather do that and dump the case on the appellate court. Maybe you won't take it up on appeal. He doesn't know, or maybe you lose on appeal. Maybe you'll well, do something do foolish, know. but he'd rather do that than answer the questions you posed. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, I'm not we, saying that's true, but know. I'm saying that's what crosses my mind. Well, that we do know the bar members are going to stick up for each other no matter what, and they do pawn it off to the next court and violate all types of procedures. 
because it's a way to get rid of you, and obviously the, they don't expect, and the majority of people will not attempt to appeal it. So here I am asking David for some pointers on exactly which issues he thinks obviously due process, but what other issues do you think I should go after this guy? And, and of course, I'm covering my back bases with criminal complaints. I've no. Everybody should be filing criminal complaints on these. I'm guys. not sure that's what true. That might be true, but I think I think if if I had to if I had to guess at what may be a fundamental mistake is that you didn't file a counterclaim against the people that were suing that were coming after you. If you had sued these people, say the prosecutor and or the police officer or whoever was involved, they hadn't given you procedural due process and you were suing these guys for say fifty grand. Again, I suspect that they would pay attention to you, and you might sue them for a whole lot more than fifty grand. But now they're liable. Right now, they're just subject to some embarrassment if the appellate court just overturns and remands the case again. Ah, we lost the case; they overturned us. No big deal. It's a big deal if he cost them some money. Well, I, and there's there's a co uh, one thing in the appeal. I don't know how to go about this exactly, but I would try to put in there some sort of sanctions for this because it's not a mistake what he's yeah. doing. It is, yeah, that's another point. it is willful, and they're doing it on purpose. Now, yeah. you know, and how about vindictive? Is, I mean, he well, you can use all the adjectives, you know, that there well, are. Well, it's not just vindictive. What's the what's the magic word here? Maybe malicious. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, he's acting with malice. My criminal complaint. I put malice all over the place. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, Violating his oath of office and violating, but you know, there is one. Or there is one other point I want to make for you and everybody listening is that when you put in a motion, uh, and you mentioned that you didn't get any uh, notice of a motion hearing or anything, you don't just get a motion hearing automatically. You have to actually ask for it in your motion, or they'll just rule okay. and say denied, and that's your that's your hearing. You don't get anything. Okay, you have to. You have to, you have to call it up. Yeah, you have to and, say, and I, I, I want to hear it. Up. Okay. I did call it up. So did the prosecutor call it up because he had a bunch of motions. I had a bunch of motions, and, but it never went off. It didn't happen. And the judge knew this. I mean, I only told him, like, man, in the first little hearing when he assumed the case, I had to be ten times until it would turn into a screaming I match. think what they're trying to do here is just hopefully you won't fall through. And even if you do, like Al says, it goes to the uh, you know appeals court. They overturn it, and these judges can say, well, you know, it's because we started with one judge, then we had another judge. It was confusing. We lost track. You know, whoops, sorry. You know that sort of thing. It seems that's what they're trying to play here. Yeah, the bar. Yeah, there's a, probably a 99 percent percentile chance that. A person like myself isn't going to continue, but they, they picked on the wrong person. I am going to continue, and it's going to get worse than that because I, I've got another friend on the other end who continues to tell me, do the same thing you did in 2005. Sue him in federal district court. Just sue him. And, uh, and that's in the works yeah. also. Yeah. And um, so that's the approaches. And then, of course, the criminal complaints never go away. So I'm going to file another one over the actual trial. I mean, I only filed a criminal complaint over the hearing aspect when he wound up threatening me so many times. And, of course, I wasn't guilty of anything, and I walked out of that courtroom, and he knew it. He could not put me in jail for any reason. For you know, There was no reason. I wasn't in contempt. I wasn't, you know, I was just uh, exercising a right for procedural due process. And I'm demanding and trying to secure a right. And, of course, it didn't happen. So 
Uh, and the prosecutor, I even spoke to the prosecutor when I was saying beforehand, before that, and I said, you are aware I've even got criminal complaints against all you people, and you're still going to go through with this? He says it's going to trial right now. <laughs> These guys are brazen. And they know the bar members, they're close shop mon monopoly union buddy card union holders, and obviously they don't have licenses, but they have bar cards, and... Uh, they're union members, and they're going to stick up for each other. It's like the Teamsters, Steelworkers, or Roofers Union, or whatever. They're going to stick together, cover for each other. So, of course, until we can ever do something about the bar in this country, which, I don't know, are you guys familiar with a guy uh, named Rod Class? Yes, I know the name. I think I've okay, heard it. Okay, he did a study on how the bar usurped the courts, and they had used a second edition, according to him, Black's Law, claiming in there... They state on the congressional record of such and such a year that they had congressional authority to start moving into the bar. Well, when you check into it and go to the, through the congressional authority for that year, you'll find nothing. In other words, they have usurped the courts without any congressional or legislative authority whatsoever. They are just a closed shop monopoly union in total control. And, of course, the money trail leads back to Rothschild and the city of London and the, the Lawyers Guild and all that sort of thing. So we've got a problem there, and, and it's obviously hurting all of us. But the big confusion, of course, and the reason I'm mentioning all this stuff is David might be on to something, uh, which may interest you also, Frank. He might be on to something where he says he's stating when, the, when it's a creature of the legislature, the taxation scheme, it has nothing to do with the Constitution, and of course I'm writing back to him asking, well then why the lip service and, and the motions of the court hearing? Well, it sounds to me like what he just said was, where Congress has exclusive jurisdiction to create a taxing scheme, you don't get any uh, you know, due process. Which now, and this I think you get true. procedural due process even within the territories and where Congress has well, exclusive legislative jurisdiction. I think you get procedural. I think you don't get substantive, and I think that's what shows up in the states of the union. But I'm not sure that's true. That's just my opinion. I I agree with you, Al, that they're admitting that they're a territorial district administrative court of some type, and mm -hmm. once they make the rules, you follow them, and you won't get due process. Provided that you consent to them, I think this is a function. I think this this whole administrative process, I think, is a function of your consent. Do you consent to be administered? And if you don't object, it's going to be presumed. Well, he walked in. He should have known what he was doing. You know. Well, like, this was the the hearing or the trial was the fifth time, and obviously, I would not go along with anything for the five all five times. But, of course, they just turn around and railroad you. So, yeah, I intend to appeal it, but I'm getting mixed issues, and, and David really threw a wrench in my program. So that's why I was saying uh, you might uh, – uh, I'll send Frank an email, and you can get a hold of him. You might want to bring him on because he is really certain that – and he says, I love Al. I love his intelligence in, in this email I'm reading right now. But he said, Al's wrong. <laughs> well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, I might be. He might be right. I may be mistaken. You know, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not giving prophecy on this stuff. I'm just telling people what I think. What I, I'm telling people where I, you know, the well, conclusions I'm, I've I'm come curious. to, and they might be mistaken. I'm curious. It's one thing to say somebody's wrong. That's real easy. 
So what's going on then, according to... Okay, he gave you that's said. why I told you about that link, which now I forget what it's called. Uh, Heritage, somebody? Something about Horizons. Horizons, yeah. Yes, LostHorizons.com, he seems... New to Horizons, or what was it? Blog. Are, are you guys familiar with his blog? It's actually no. just his name and blog... Is this Rod Class we're talking about, the no, responsible no, no, for this no, blog, no. or somebody else? No, this is David Bell, uh, but the Rod Class thing uh, is very interesting in that there is absolutely no legislative, legis, legislative authority. They've just moved in. They just... Yeah, I know. I know, and that's why I think it has to be consensual. The essence has to be. If they don't have legislative authority, this is one of the things when Frank was talking earlier and somebody says, we don't work for you. All right, then what's your jurisdiction over me? If you're not working for the people, how do you get jurisdiction over the people? Yes, yes. I think it has to be by individual consent. I think that I won't say that's necessarily true, but there's a high probability your consent is presumed. Somebody shows up with a badge and a gun and a, you know, a hat and a club, and you say, oh, this guy's a police officer. Well, maybe he is and maybe he's not. Maybe he has constitutional authority, and maybe he's just no better than a rent-a-cop down at Walmart. Well, that's what they are, and of course... They use all kinds of intimidation and oh, yeah. that sort of thing. But when when you do question them, the big question is why do they make if you if you have no procedural due process rights, why do they run you through the paces of bringing you through a court hearing at all? In other words, if you didn't pay a driver license tax. Why don't they just mug you like an ordinary thug and steal the, your money and your credit cards and leave you laying on the side of the road? That's yeah, what well, you're kind of asking. We don't need procedural due process. If they catch you, they get to keep whatever they steal. Or because you had already signed up for one, which I had done many years ago, and going 20 years without one now, just when they see that it's not, you didn't sign up again, just send you a notice that says, pay, we come kill you. I mean, this, this is ridiculous, this stuff. It's, I don't know. I'm uh, terribly confused. But if you'd consider getting David on, maybe, or giving him a call, and maybe you can pick his brain about what it is that he knows, or read his blog, I'll send it to Frank. And, um, and it might also answer your questions where, uh, where you're going through the IRS, because there's another taxing authority that's claiming they don't work for us. And obviously, Al pretty much answered that question, but... Uh, this is all, um, this is not amusing, believe me. <laughs> no, I understand, but this is one of the things. If somebody's going to tell you, I don't work for you, okay, how did you get jurisdiction over me? And they derive right? their alleged... And I don't think they get, I don't think, I think this is a valid challenge. You're either working for me as an administrator of the the express charitable trust we call the, the Constitution of the State of Texas, or you're not working for me. If you're not working for me, if you're under that Constitution, we've given you jurisdiction. As, as one of the people, we've given you jurisdiction over us in limited matters. If you're not working for us, if we're not your beneficiaries, why are you talking to me? Are you just a common thug trying to steal some of my property? Well, when you ask them through, through right of inquiry, they won't answer. No, I know. It's, Which it's, tells it's you what. Simple. How, you know, I don't know what, I, I haven't read your paperwork, so I couldn't criticize or comment or one thing or another like that. But if you do these questions, 
in a simple manner. And I try to do all my questions, yes or no, yes or no. Do you understand that such and such and such and such is true? Yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. Always just yes or no. No multiple guess, no fill in the blanks, yes or no. That's the way I try to put it together. How hard can it be if I ask you, do you understand Swahili? How hard is it for you to say yes or no? I can ask a sixth grade student if he understands Swahili. It's an easy question. Sixth graders can say, no, I don't know anything about Swahili. Oh, they say, yeah, I speak Swahili. But I did an- start with your template that's on your blog spot out with all the yes and no questions, and it mm-hmm. wound up being 163 of them, and it was too many, and I knew they'd never do it, so I cut it all the way down to 33 yes or no's. Okay. You know, and, 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 and submitted it three different times. Judge ordered the prosecutor three different times to answer it, which puts him in contempt of court. Yet, yet you know, they just, it doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. I think, I think, again, if he ordered the prosecutor three times to do this and the prosecutor didn't do it, it seems to me that there may be a way of suing the prosecutor for depriving you of your procedural due process. I mean, you've even got the judges said, yeah, give it to them. Tell them. Answer the damn questions. And if the prosecutor says, uh-uh, uh-uh, I'm not going to do it, it seems to me like he's your guy. Right? He's the guy that needs a. He's the guy who might be most vulnerable to a lawsuit in this matter because the judge himself has said, "Give him, give him procedural due process." And the prosecutor says no. Well, with pleasure. Uh, there are four prosecutors that touch this thing already, and there always is the U.S. District <laughs> Court uh, to hold these guys accountable. So, what happens if you've? How long has this case been going on? Ah, uh, since uh, the. The uniform citation was May of this year. May of this year. May of 2016? Yes. Okay, you don't have a year in on this yet, then. I'm sorry, say it again. There is not, this, a year has not expired, has not expired since the beginning, since the first paperwork in this case. No. After a year is up, if there's a pattern of racketeering activity, it opens the door to RICO suits, which are complex and, uh, you know, I mean, it takes some study, but you get to function as, an, as, a, as a private attorney general when you file yeah, a RICO suit. Class and, but there has exactly. to be at least a year between the first event and the one second event that constitutes a pattern of racketeering activity, and there's got to be at least a year between them, and then if there's more than one person involved, and that sort of thing, you know, I'm not I'm telling you this is going to work, but it's the sort of thing that I'm I guarantee it'll make them roll their eyes. It's the same two racketeers from 2005 that I sued that are now the judge and prosecutor actually elected with those of office, or affirmations, whatever you want to call it. So uh, uh, there is a pattern of racketeering, and I even said that. I called him an absolute criminal racketeer, and he was going to put the case. I was angry. When he threatened me the fourth time with, with jail, I unloaded on him. And the courtroom w- w- really was stirring. And, 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 and I'll tell you, he, he <laughs> You're probably waiting for the bailiff to pull his gun and shoot you or something. You probably hadn't heard that sort of behavior in the courtroom before. They were, there were two, and they were menacing me. They were on either mm-hmm. side of me, breathing down, and I'm sitting down, hands on the table. They run you through all the metal detectors and all that sort of thing. It's a brand-new state-of-the-art building. 
And I did have a miniature recorder with me, but it malfunctioned. So I started foyering for any court recordings from the um, foyer is a wonderful thing, and any court recordings uh, that might have been from security cameras. And they had little bubbles in the courtroom with the security cameras, but they all start claiming, "Oh no, no, there was nothing there. There was no recording on." This is why the judge went ballistic. So, uh, so, so what? It was not. It was not a court of record. They admit that. They claim it wasn't on any type of audio or video recording. So I started demanding. It was three o'clock in the afternoon. There were still fifty people that needed to be heard. So I started demanding through FOIA that they produce the record, the court docket for that day, and they made an excuse that they don't have them. It changes all the time. I said it doesn't matter. You go back in the judge's docket and you send me every single person's name as a witness that had a court hearing after mine. There's a good chance that those people, and it's public record because it's posted on the bulletin board, all the case, you know, the state versus whom, mm -hmm. and the state, you know, I want it. It's public record. It was public record. I want it. It's song and dances. So I'm doing like a third FOIA request right now directly to the clerk of courts, and this time she's probably going to cough it up. So FOIA is a wonderful thing. No need to pay for court transcripts anymore. You get it on CD. And you can also put a little clause that I put in my FOIA. When you say you get it on CD, you mean you get the audio the on CD or you get a document that's been transcribed from audio into, into text? No, you get the actual proceeding on CD, and then I imagine you can go to Certified Court Reporter and have mm -hmm. her and save a lot of money that way rather than paying the court's Certified Reporter to transcribe it. You can probably do it yourself. It is a certified copy on CD of the actual proceeding. So FOIA is a wonderful thing, and hopefully they, they really shouldn't be able to doctor with that CD, but they probably can. Well, one of the but things that you're telling us that actually makes, uh, I think you're saying, that makes a lot of sense to me, and I, I wouldn't have thought of it on my own, I don't think, but well, if I'll they're telling you that your record is missing and they didn't record it, then what about no, the guy that was there in front of you? Do they have a record for him? And the guy that was there behind you, do they have a record for him? Meaning, I mean, if they don't have a record for anybody that day, okay, then well, maybe there was a I'm defect in the recording the equipment. But if you're the only one, that's evidence you've been selectively deprived of the record you'll need for an appeal. And more maliciousness. Oh. Well, yes, yes, but what I'm asking for are the names of the people that were sitting, the 50 people sitting behind me waiting for their hearing to come up as witnesses to the judge's behavior because they are stating that nothing was on any type of security or audio record. So I foiled the name of the company that manages and, and services the uh, security equipment to find out just how... Uh, it's programmed to record because this is a brand new state-of-the-art building and surely the security cameras are on outside the building, inside the building, and more than likely inside the courtroom. So if I ask the security company what they're programmed to do, because I know the cameras are in there under little ceiling bubbles in the ceiling tiles like Walmart has and that kind of thing. So I'm trying to get to the bottom of that. But using FOIA, I can tell you one other time it really helped. I'm in another case involved in, I was telling you guys a little bit about it before, and it was an, uh, I did auto repair, a $10,000 job for somebody, and the, the guy snuck up and stole his car. 
And I filed a criminal complaint, and the detectives were doing nothing, 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 and after four months, I got them to do something. Never did they think that I would get my hands on public record by asking for their actual interviews, audio interviews, only to find out that they took confessions from the guy, tipped him off to clean up the crime scene and sell the car before I got anywhere near it. This is right in their interview with the guy. He admitted he snuck up to my shop and stole the car, didn't pay for it, and I got this through FOIA because they never thought that I'd get my hands on that audio, and they lost state's evidence. They took pictures of the title and all kinds of things on the car, and they wouldn't turn them over to me, and, they, and you could hear the camera clicking away, and they told me, well, we lost them all. In other words, they blocked me from putting a lien on the car because the car was an open title, had belonged to a dealer, and it came in with no tags, no registration, no insurance, no, you know, no nothing, and all I knew was the guy that dropped it off who owns a dealership. And he wound up sneaking up and stealing the car. Uh, incidentally, uh, well, his, him, him and his dealership, two partners, two of them are sitting in, fed, in federal pen right now for money laundering millions of dollars through a meth ring, and they'd launder the money buying exotic cars and sending them back to the states the meth came from. So they're sitting in a federal pen, two of them, and I'm still chasing the third one, the third owner of the dealer, uh, trying to get payment. Believe me, I'm, I'm a crap magnet, gentlemen. I really am a crap magnet. But <laughs> FOIA is great. Well, it sounds like you've FOIA. got a, well, a capacity for persistence that's impressive. Uh, I'm angry. I'm angry. So, yeah, uh, but you don't seem like you're screaming and shouting. And again, you're, a lot of people get angry and they start to scream and shout. You sound like somebody gets angry and becomes persistent. Well, yes. Uh, you know, put your anger into a positive direction. And, and uh, yeah, I, ha I do have a tendency. Uh, my nickname used to be Tick, if that tells you anything. Once I get on you, you're not going to get me off. <laughs> so, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, anyway, I'll stop sucking up your time. Just food for thought. Well, let me ask you one other. Let me make just one more point. We've already made it a little bit during the course of the program. Mm -hmm. But when you see them claiming that the audio record is missing, they didn't make one, they lost it, whatever, You've seen it in at least two instances now that we're talking about that you, if, uh, in, in, your, in, in, two different, in two different instances. You've seen it both times. What do you think that indicates when, they, when, they, when the record disappears? Well, obviously they're trying to cover their unlawful actions. That's exactly right. It's evidence. They don't need, they, if you are wrong, they shouldn't need to break the law in order to prove that you're an error. Insofar as they start violating the law in a way that's obvious and apparent, they can maybe get away. Oh, we lost it. Oh, bull crap. The dog ate my homework, or the dog ate the court transcript, or something like that. Bull crap. All right? Everybody knows it, but maybe they can still pull it off. They're used to get it. If they have to rely on breaking the law in order to get a conviction or get rid of you or whatever, that proves that you are fundamentally right and they know they're wrong. Well, there That's were what's going on 50, here. There were 50 witnesses to the judge's rage, just eye-popping, frothing, animated, screaming rage. He just lost <laughs> it, man. <laughs> Off the rails. And it was I wish I could have been there. Was, 
It, the magic word when he lost it immediately was, I'm here under special appearance, and that was all it took. And I just kept talking over him, saying under threats, threats, other forms of violence, false imprisonment. That's, that, that's, that's the only reason I'm here, is, is, and, uh, and I fear for my life. <laughs> I think I threw that in there. But they claim there was no recording, and darn it, don't ask me why the good Lord did it to me, but he did. My little miniature digital recorder, dictaphone, did not work that trip. I don't know why. Well, maybe because you're going to look around and find it from somewhere else, like one of their sources, where it's not your recording that they would say, oh, you, you know, that's fake news. But it could be well, from them. Well, we do know the courts have ruled there's no reasonable expectation of privacy in a public and open hearing. No, so and they've got, you, you know, the they've got multiple microphones in a, in a new building like that. Yep, that thing is wired, that. man. Matter of fact, I asked the clerks, and the clerk says, of course there's cameras in that. And then the main clerk, the elected one, and that's another question, gentlemen. What branch of government does the clerk of courts work for? Well, what kind of court are you talking about? If the clerk is the clerk of court, then, it, then it's, that's pretty good evidence that he works for that court. But what kind of court are we talking about? Is it administrative or is it judicial? Well, the answer that I'm coming up with through somebody else's research is uh, somehow they are elected, but they're a notary. They're one of we the people, and the courts of all those different types, meta, whatever variety it might be, uses an actual notary to rubber stamp to legitimize everything because pretty much all those courts have no authority outside of Washington, D.C., without possibly the succession of the property to them as in a courthouse. So there's mixed bag on that one. Is, is the clerk, of course, part of the executive branch? And then, of course, there's the next question. And every constitution states it, but being a, a judicial officer of the bar, which means, uh, according to the bar's website, the prosecutors, obviously, they're lawyers, and obviously uh, they're... Uh, the Supreme Court is the one that issues their licenses of the state, yet they're working in the executive branch, which obviously is a violation of separation of, of, of powers. And I start asking those questions in my bill of particulars. Oh, no, no, we're not going to answer that. You know, uh, how do you get away with filing? Pardon me? I'll bet they're not going to answer that. They're not going to give you an answer on the public record. No, and that's why they won't answer my bill of particulars, because I want to know, who are you? Who is this all capital letter state of Missouri on the, on the uniform citation? Who mm -hmm. is this all capital letter uh, uh, in the circuit court of Taney County, Missouri? Who, who, or just exactly what are you? I, I need to yeah. try to understand nature and And what is you your authority who? over me? Who made you the boss of me? That's what I want to know. And I put in affidavit stating I'm a Genesis 128 man, you know, uh, you know, within the boundaries of the Union of States, uh, domicile, and, and which is within the boundaries of the United States of America, and so on, and mm -hmm. and did that twice, two, three, mm -hmm. three different um, affidavits. What, of if you had to do it over again, what would you do? <sighs> I'd have done an abatement faster because I have some friends that have done abatements uh, challenging uh, a proper, improper summons, and it went away fast. 
See, I think that's the right idea. What I'm saying is this. Insofar as you walked into their courtroom, you put them in a position where they had no choice. They either had to railroad you or admit you're right. They don't want it. They don't want to. They don't want to deal with that choice. But if they have to, they're going to railroad you. What perhaps you should have done is to submit your paperwork well before you ever got to court. Submit your questions early on, not when you got to court. I don't. Have, I want to get the the questions in early to perhaps the arresting officer if there was one and whatever. Um, and if they can see this coming, they can make it disappear. But once you well, get into we'll court, now you've, you're, in a, you're calling their bluff in a public forum. They can't admit you're right. They can't do it in public. They won't. And therefore, and you have a, you. You know, you've, you've had these kinds of problems from my perspective. I agree with you. I should have, and I didn't have my act together, and I didn't do an abatement before I made an appearance. And you're right. It's very important to stay out of their grips. If yep. you can do it from a distance, do it from a distance. And do it in the distance in time, not just in the distance physically, but a distance in time. Get to them and let them see, uh-oh, we got some big trouble coming at us. I mean, that might not be enough to satisfy you. But if they look at it and they say, uh-oh, this is going to be a mess, they may just turn you loose. I mean, it happens. Will I know. I know from personal experience. They just, all right, you're out of here. And they don't even tell you. <laughs> in my case, they didn't even tell me, you're out of here. They just, that's it. They just stopped coming. They, it was more trouble than they wanted to deal with. It doesn't now, mean they I'm couldn't have beaten But What I'm also you know. doing, which I love to do, is I'm sowing a lot of discord within that brand new judicial center by filing criminal complaints. And when I do, I make sure that they go through the director of communications, that they go through the clerk of courts. That they're Why do they go through the director of communications? Because then he has to forward them to the sheriff, the clerk of courts, so I'm making a big, fat electronic paper trail, which also all the employees, because they chatter, are all talking about what's going on between the judge yeah. and the prosecutors yeah. and this guy. So I'm sowing dis the seeds of discord to disrupt on purpose. You can call me Satan, but that's what I'm going to do. I'm well, gonna try to you know, these people, the other people in the court, the people, the bailiffs, for example, and the clerks and whatever, mm -hmm. they take those jobs, at least in the beginning, operating under the assumption that the, the great and powerful judges and the prosecutors, they know all the law, and if they say it's okay, it's okay. When they see yeah, people like you get in there and frustrate the judge and the prosecutor, it has to impact on their morale. They've got to begin to realize, uh-oh, these guys aren't as smart as I thought. And, and now do I want to support them, or do I want to take a chance on supporting them? Next thing you know, I'm going to get dragged into this thing, and my house is going to be, is going to be liable to, to lean and seizure if I'm not careful. Um, well, you're having a positive you. effect on there, even though it may not be immediately apparent. Well, yes, and the Discord's working well, and uh, because this time when I walked in for the actual trial, all, this, all of the bailiffs knew my name, all mm -hmm. of the prosecutors knew my name, <laughs> and I felt sorry for the people. And I, I said, oh, I'm famous now? Gee, did I get anybody's attention? The clerk knew my name. All the minor clerks, the assistants, they all knew my name. The assistant parties, they all knew my name. They all greeted me, and, and the judge was. He gritting his teeth and, during the trial, but he was under his best behavior because I demanded it was recorded. So it, it, 
they're, they, know, they dance when they have to have the appearance, they do, but the Discord sewing is working very well. Do anything you can do to foil these rats. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're messing with these people just on the, how many hearings have you had? This is the fifth over this particular, well, the trial was the fifth time over this particular thing with one judge recusal. And how much money is at stake here? I assume you're, you're liable for some sort of a fine imposed by the, by the court. Is that true or false? 300 bucks is what they slapped me with. Oh, my I'm God. Do you realize how much money they've lost on this case already? Oh, well, to Five hearings for a mere three hundred dollars. No, that's fifty over, bucks. That's man. sixty Listen bucks a hearing, for God's group. sake. And I sent this to Frank. Listen to what I'm going to do to him next, because this is, works perfect for everything. Article one, section ten, clause eight. We written as as high school students to fifty different legislative members, including Ron Paul when he was running for president. And we asked him three questions. Is the Constitution still the supreme law of land? And the answer is yes, they would answer. The second one is, uh, is every uh, elected official bound by oath and affirmation to that Constitution? They answered yes. Third question, has Article 1, Section 10 ever been amended or repealed? The answer is no. Take all 50 of them as a reliance defense and, and, and submit it after they find you with your orders to make the fine go away, and as soon as they read it, they realize that they're not authorized to demand anything but, but lawful money of account of these United States. They can't they're not, you to use They're not authorized to demand anything but lawful money of the, of the United States within the borders of a state of the Union. Problem is, right. they, they are authorized off in a territory or an administrative district, so you just have to, you know, and they are in some places, but they're not in all places, and they're not within the right. states of the Union. And again, to my mind, you've got to establish I'm within a state of the Union, which I tell you at the beginning of the radio program every time, and it's part of the reason right. I do that. You don't even have to go that far because they don't want to go anywhere. No, I know they don't want to talk about issue. Well, I just want to go away. Well, I told you that I, you know, I'm waiting now. Uh, you know, it's only been a week, but I'm I'm waiting on a reply from some uh, elected officials on that question. Specifically, you know, how exactly is it that you are, uh, you know, demanding that I pay taxes with the Federal Reserve notes? when it says you're not allowed to do that. And I asked them, you know, the questions, is this a state of, is this one of the states of the, you know, one of the several states of the Union? You know, and is it, a, is it uh, under emergency, a state of emergency? Uh, uh, you and know, I don't mean a state of the Union. I don't mean a state, but I mean a condition of emergency. Ah, uh, you know the, what? Part it, of the racket. It's funny because, you know, I addressed that because I found a court, uh, it's actually not a court case. It's American jurisprudence. Uh, that says basically there is no emergency that allows for the Constitution to be set aside. Mm -hmm. That it doesn't matter. It's an emergency. Great. That still doesn't mean you get to set aside the Constitution. You're just going to have to deal with the emergency, you know, within the rules of the Constitution. But who does yeah, the emergency? But who does the Constitution apply to? Well, sure. You've got to get yourself, you know. 
you've got to. There may be there may be emergencies for taxpayers. There might be emergencies for U.S. persons and U.S. citizens. Is there an emergency though that can suspend the Constitution for people? No. But maybe well, you, under emergency, if you're appearing in a capacity in a, other than one of the people, maybe they can pull that emergency off, at least well, in their opinion, and make it stick legally. Well, American jurisprudence says, I, I got it right here. Mm-hmm. This is a quote from it, and it's uh, Amjur 16, second edition, uh, section 98. While an emergency cannot create power and no emergency justifies the violation of any provisions of the United States Constitution or states' constitutions, and then of course it goes on, but that's the part that I wanted to make a point there for, you know, and this is part of the letter that I wrote, is because I, I you know, I kind of anticipated, well, you know, we're in emergency, so, you know, well, sorry, that doesn't, that still doesn't matter. On top of which, what's the emergency? Well, yeah. All right. Got we're in emergency, my ass. The purpose of Congress and your state <laughs> legislature is to deal with emergencies and to resolve them. We are allegedly in an emergency that's going all the way back to 1933. They haven't resolved the emergency. They're saying an emergency is a terrible thing to waste, and under the pretext of the emergency, they're depriving us of our rights. They're not solving the emergency, which is their job. They're exploiting the emergency in order to exert power over you and me and everybody else in this country. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I'm curious. I'm curious to see what kind of answers, uh, you know, I get. What they're going to say, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and also on on the suspending the Constitution, you can't suspend creator endowed rights as per the second sentence slash paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. And also the Ninth Amendment, which guarantees that any, even if the rights are not specified in the Constitution, if they're not enumerated in the Constitution of the United States, you still have them. They are still obligated to secure your rights if they're already there. Now, under the Ninth Amendment, and that Ninth Amendment opens the door to the Declaration of Independence, in my opinion. And your God-given and which, unalienable rights. So I got those rights. We celebrate them every Fourth of July. Recognize and enforce them for me. Right, which is why I don't quite understand what David Bowles trying to tell me that because it's an impossibility. But I'm not too versed on this kind of thing, and I thought it would be interesting, Alice. Uh, I'll give you the email, his email. Maybe you can communicate with. Well, him. I'm still and, curious. I'm still curious, uh, and I, I'm not. If you did answer, I, I missed it. That what is if okay. That's not happening. You don't get due process. It isn't this, and it isn't that. Well, then what is it? What is the solution, according to him? There is none. It's a rape. I see. It's a well, rape. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. And I, I, I understand that, in fact, it may be a rape down at the trial court level. I agree that that's, that's one way to look at this and interpret it. But I am still sufficiently naive to think that if you dot all your I's and cross all your T's, and if you're absolutely right with God and Jesus, you might be able to take this thing up on an appeal and another appeal and another appeal, and somebody in a position of real power might finally say, we've got to admit that this guy was right. We can't, we can't let this stand where we just authorize rape. We've well, got to sit and, back and, and say and rape and is wrong. You know what? We've got to take a stand. God's got to end that. I think it's possible. Uh, I'm not even betting on it. But I think it's possible. Well, one thing about rape, 
It ain't rape unless you say no. Okay? And, you know, you, you, you have to deal with their presumptions. You must rebut them, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's part of it. You know, you can't just walk in there and, you know, and not do that. And, and I, I really do think that, uh, I think one of, the, one of the things that this, your case there shows is that I think it may, and, and I have no way of knowing because I haven't done it, and I really think a counterclaim is a great way to go with, with anything, anything, basically, that you can manage a counterclaim. And obviously you have, you have many issues that you could raise a counterclaim over what they've been doing. Well, it's probably much easier uh, to do the federal district court routine, at, which isn't a counterclaim. It's a fresh new thing, and they generally don't 12B6 stuff like this. They generally, you know, I have enough cause, and obviously the court docket proves by their own entries that I was deprived due process of a motion hearing. So, one of the things about counterclaim is that it's a new suit, right? But it comes before the existing suit. The court has to hear your counterclaim before they hear the original claim. And that gives you a serious advantage, and it opens a door where I don't even think they can get rid of it on a 12B6. I think a counterclaim is the the prosecutor or whoever is charging you, suing you, whatever, they've opened this up. They created the jurisdiction, and you can walk right in on that counterclaim, I suspect. Although I don't know that to be absolutely true, but it's the way it appears to me. But I am, I'm inclined to agree with Frank. We need to learn to understand counterclaims. And from my perspective, ideally, every time someone slaps you with a seatbelt violation, they need to know there's going to be a counterclaim. And we're going to hear that first. And, and I'd love it, to hear an update from Deborah if you guys get around to it. She's a well, wind man. Yeah, I understand. Ooh, yeah. But, and and it, I'll and tell you something crazy. about Deborah. Mm-hmm. Deborah's middle-aged, and she's going back to college, and she's wrapped up now over 40-hour credit hours over the Internet from Liberty University. And she's in the process of making an application to Harvard. She wants to complete her degree at Harvard. And she just might pull it off. She is a surprising, surprising, uh, in a lot of ways, she's a surprising woman. There's a lot of fleas in Harvard. Wait, lay down with dogs. Oh, I understand that, but just the same. Uh, Deborah didn't graduate from high school. Wow. You understand that? And here she is, middle-aged, putting in an application to Harvard, and she may pull it off. She's going to get a college degree. Maybe from Harvard, maybe not, but she's going to get a college degree. And this is all pretty remarkable. You call, you think, (laughs) you you have a reputation for persistence. Well, I've I've joked about it before. (laughs) Deborah, (laughs) she has two pit bulls for pets. Uh-huh. And I think she taught them everything they know about being uh, persistent. <laughs> right. Yes, sir. She is definitely uh, uh, an Energizer bunny. That's for yep. sure. We'll she try to get her back on here. I'm sure we'll get her back on another one of these weeks. 
Great, great. Okay, I will email Frank uh, David's uh, email, and maybe you can pick his brain, get him on, and uh, email you his. Uh, no, I'd rather. Uh, I, I wouldn't number. even want to talk to him privately about this necessarily. I mean, I might get some preliminary input and input and rest of it, but I really, if it's possible, maybe we can get David on the program, and it's more interesting to me just but to go through this and do it you... live, original, and see what he's got to say, and see what Frank and I have to say. Yeah, and he says that that uh, you have invited him on a couple of times, but I think his problem is, and granted, Frank has an 800 number there, but I think his problem is he's just, he's really gone through some hard times, and it's not real good on Main Street out here, I can tell you that. And, uh, yeah, I understand. His, yeah, he can't even afford long distance, and so we email, which is a pain in the butt. But anyway, well, I'll again, get Skype, Skype, free, 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 free. All you I need is a headset, cost you 20 bucks. Yeah, I don't know if he's got it or not. He's got a rudimentary computer. I do know that much, and he's got a blog. Uh, apparently, he tends to, and that's really all I know. Uh, he's, he is here in Missouri, and it's been a rough, rough time, um, but he, he knows a lot. And and, what's uh, his, what, what is his blog? Oh, goodness, it's David Bow. I'd have to dig it up. And no, we could track it down. I'm sure you track, you insert I'll David, you, you Google David Bow, you'll find it without probably too much trouble. Yes, I'll send it to him. And thanks, guys, man. Thanks for being there. Just to, just thought you'd find that interesting in that long yeah, we do. Horizon. We do. We're always glad to hear somebody, you know, gets, gets fighting reports fight. from people that are actually doing it rather than just talking about it. We're talking about it. Um, well, I'm but not, in the end, I'm, it's, I'm it's the ones that are doing it that's going to make a difference. I'm learning as I go, and, and, oh, yeah. and obviously, um, anyway, Greg speaking. Do you think you'll ever get to a point where you don't need to learn anymore? No, are you kidding? No, I am oh, kidding. And it's just a point a lot of people think, well, we'll just study this and I'll, I'll learn this and then it's done. No, this is a constant process because the system is evolving in front of our eyes and whatever tricks they've used on you in the past, you can bet a year from now, they'll have new tricks. Uh, if you can overcome the tricks they've got, they'll have new tricks a year from now. And you will have to learn what those tricks are to deal with them. Uh, yeah, they put those manuals out for judges on how to defeat patriot arguments. We yeah. know those manuals are floating around, and they do these judges' conferences in the state capitol. So they're actively working against us and trying to head us off at the pass, and, yeah. uh, and it's, it's tough. And when we stop learning, we'll be room temperature, I know. <laughs> that's about the size of it. So. Well, and that's what you have to think. I mean, part of this, this is, a, this is this, this activity of... What, what we've called guerrilla lawfare in the past. This is something where you, it's a lifelong occupation. This is like, I mean, it's like becoming a monk in a lot of regards. Um, if you're going to do this, you're not going to just do it and be done with it and then go back to watching TV. You, if you're really getting into this, you're going to get into it. And not just because you're afraid of the system, but because you are fascinated. You get into this and all of a sudden you say, oh, my God. This is really I don't quite have extraordinary. The same I do not have the same fascination. I would love to go. I don't own a television, but I would love to be watching a little right now. <laughs> I could use a break from this stuff. Yeah, I get that, but just the same. You couldn't. I, once your eyes are opened, I don't know that you can ever close them again. No, you're no, going to see things, and it's going to drag you back. And as much as you may dislike it or even hate it, you're going to find yourself. Drawn back and drawn back. It's like you know, falling in yeah, love with no a with a beautiful whore. 
Right. Yeah, there's no way you to keep block coming off. back. It's one of those things that you know I shouldn't be here, yeah, but just the same, it's uh, blah blah blah. If it weren't for the fact that I'm semi-retired, there would not have been the time to even do anything. There's another fact. The, yeah, big fact. Uh, yeah, I would have been one of the. That's what. That's one of the things. You know, Deborah, you mentioned her earlier. She is. She's. She's unemployed and living in poverty. But I told her she has the power of poverty, right? Which is to yeah. say she has time. Most people are so busy hustling just to make ends meet and to try to make a little more money or to try to avoid losing what money they have. They don't have time to read and research, and which is required if you're going to do this. Deborah has Absolutely. time. And you have time being semi-retired. I have time. Frank has time. And they right. twice the We have things to do. I don't mean that we're completely, you know, without anything to do, but got time, time, so valuable, so incredibly valuable. Yeah, and the and the the fine amounts are just uh, they're just where the average person is just going to pay them and make it go away oh, yeah. rather than lose yeah. their work. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean. We're talking about how much you have cost the court system trying to collect a lousy $300 and six hearings so far and more coming. It's going to cost them $50,000 or more. By the time they get done with the appeals and this, it's going to probably cost them fifty grand to collect 300 bucks out of you. They won't want you back in their casino another time. Uh, right? they won't but it costs you too. Pardon me? They won't. They won't collect the 300 because I'm going to do that reliance defense over Article 1, Section 10. So they won't even collect that. So they all know my name. That's great. And eventually the word will get around. And at that point, really all you have to do is mention to, if you get stopped again, and just mention, uh, Deputy, you ought to call the sheriff and the judge yeah, and yeah, yeah. see if they want me in there. Yeah. And it might bring it to a, a halt. So, I've heard stories you. that... Once you go through enough of this, they actually flag your they flag your name in the main computers where they keep track of driver's licenses and the rest of that. And if they and if they stop you and they they pull up your name and the rest of it, in some instances, I've heard stories from people that I think they're probably true that they get a flag and they just <laughs> and they just say, "Well, I'm just going to give you a warning and have a nice day," <laughs> and they turn you loose. Unless you've yeah, murdered somebody or something like that. But if this is a no, it's not a serious offense, get him out of here. We don't want to mess with him. Yeah, I've heard the same thing. And if it's a local, yeah, your word, the name will spread around your name and they, they will back off, no doubt. But I wouldn't count that in other states and that kind of thing. I wouldn't count I've heard that states. it goes into a national computer. And that the, it, again, what I hear and what I know, you know, I hear a lot and I know a little. But maybe it's yeah, true. In my findings, because I live on the Arkansas-Missouri line, I have had instances where they had a warrant for no driver license, and I never did anything about it, in Missouri, and I get stopped right on the state line on the Arkansas side, and they do not communicate. They just let me go about my business. Mm -hmm. I got caught in one of those, um, and it was midday, <laughs> and I guess you could say it was a DUI check. and. Uh, and uh, all I had was an international driver license at the time, and there was absolutely uh, something in Missouri on me for no driver license. And they just said, uh, 
you're fine with your international driver license, go about your business, and, and uh, the Missouri episode didn't come up. So mm-hmm. who knows if they actually do communicate. So anyway. I don't doubt they communicate. Do they understand? That's the question for me. Do they have any idea what they're doing? I mean, I know that some of them do. But a lot of them, well, I don't think they have a clue. I think all they know is, you know, payday is on the 1st and the 15th. I think that's what they know. I did get to grill the cop on the stand during this mock trial that they put me through. I, I would not uh, rubber stamp it by, um, by um, testifying myself. But I did take the opportunity to ask the cop, you know, the typical, uh, uh, just any reasons that I might be in transportation, traffic, commerce, that I have any yeah. passengers, that kind of, uh, have you read the Constitution? Uh, I mean, did you swear an oath to it and all that type Have you ever read it? No. You know, <laughs> it's the same thing. You just embarrass them. They don't know anything. They, no, no. And this is a just following orders. Deputy. Yeah, he was on the for six years, didn't have a clue, just a big guy, yeah. got hired because because he could carry a gun and uh, he could wear a tin star in a Halloween costume. Mm-hmm. Knee breakers for the mob that runs this country. That's what they function as. They don't serve and protect we the people. And they forgiven have, Frank gave, they gave him some evidence that said, I don't, I don't work for you. They're saying, we don't serve you. We don't serve and protect you people. They we are, serve and protect our employer. Our employer is the one we serve and protect. That's true for the cops. They serve and they serve and protect the corporation that employs them. They don't serve and protect the people. I agree. I agree. Thank you guys. I gotta go get wrong. Finish your show. Thank you kindly. Appreciate you guys. Thanks for the call. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. What do you think, Frank? Well, I think um, I you know it just. Like I said before, I think counterclaim. I mean, this is another case yeah, where it seems yeah, like, yeah. boy, I think that might work. You know, I think yeah, that I might. might I, hit I think cost. it's the key to the whole thing. When these people come after you for three hundred dollars, and you're in a position to sue them for fifty thousand dollars, that's not a game most people want to play. Nobody no. wants to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna risk fifty thousand dollars to collect. <laughs> Three hundred dollars? You got to be crazy. And plus, right. and they don't want to play that game. And if enough people could master the art of filing counterclaims, you know, and if you're bringing up things like part of your, uh, you know, counterclaim could be, well, you know, they're operating a scheme because they're, you know, they're not the state of the union. They're not one of the yeah, states of the yeah. union. And provide the evidence into court. They're going to have to deal with it. Well, I have to say, well, uh, well, uh, we have evidence to show that's not true. Oh, good. Okay, that's fine with me. Yeah, I don't mind that. That's great. I don't mind I that learn. because uh, it's not just where I want to learn. There's two. There's two possibilities here. They either are or they are not officers or employees of the State of the Union. Right? Either they are or they're not. Right? If I'm, I'm saying I don't think you are. I think you're functioning as some sort of administrative. Uh, district, uh, territorial state. I don't think you're in the State of the Union. If they say, no, we're in the State of the Union, okay, I want substantive due process. Don't give me procedural due process. If you're admitting we're within the State of the Union, good. I'm good to go with that. I'll go with that. I got all, everything I want. It doesn't mean that I'll absolutely win, but it means I've got a constitution I can rely on. I've got certain rights they have to respect. Okay, fine, let's go. You're either going to, it's the question is, put them in that position where they have to either admit they are or they are not a, a representing a state of the union. 
And if they have to, if they can't, if they say yes, good. Good. Let's go. Substantive well, process. And, and, Article 5, Judicial Court. Don't give me any administrative proceedings. Well, and I, want, the I am absolutely about, entitled to judicial proceeding. Well, and that's the thing about a counterclaim. Yeah. Is that you're driving that bus. Yeah, you I say, hey, uh, you know what? Uh, here's my evidence that you are not acting as a state of the union. Here's my evidence, you know. Yeah. And uh, here's my evidence that you are treating me as though I was an animal. Here's yeah. my evidence of this. I'm I'm accusing you of these mm-hmm. things. I'm counterclaiming mm-hmm. now. Hey. Which is genocide, incidentally. You may be interested, <laughs> Officer Jones, to know that when you when you treat people as animals, that's an act of genocide. Oh, Understand man. that? You know, uh-huh. and and they're going to have to defend. You know, you you've got to defend. Yeah, you're innocent until proven guilty. But that doesn't mean you don't, you, you can, well, you know, if they have evidence, and I've seen people try this, where, okay, I'm not saying anything. You know, I'm just not going to say anything. I'm going to yep. not even say anything when I'm in there, which, by the way, I don't think is a great plan, but it's no, I don't either. It's also not as easy as it sounds. You know, I yep. mean, it's, it's hard not to say anything in these things. And, and you know, and they just... That if you don't say anything, what is, what's one of the things that happens? Well, you don't object. That's right, because there's you, no objection here. If you don't say anything, fine. See, here's gonna, how it works. We will assume your silence constitutes see, consent. That's the thing. And see, here's how it works. People think because things don't go their way, well, it's rape. Well, they're corrupt. Well, this is the way it is. Well, yeah. okay, I'm not denying they're corrupt. But that's usually not why people lose. People lose because they don't do it right, because we're never taught how to do it right, and they conceal everything from us. So the thing is, you go, well, okay, the theory is I'm not, you know what, they have to prove that I'm guilty. I don't have to say anything. Okay, so you don't oh, say yeah, anything. Oh, yeah, terrible mistake. Yeah, terrible so, mistake. So you don't say anything, and they come up with the, with the flimsiest little bit of evidence, right? I mean, that normally you could just... And you don't deny it. You don't say anything. Okay, so... You don't deny it. Yeah. Because now what? While they just won. You didn't enter any evidence, and they did. You win. While the presumption, they win, excuse me. While the presumption is you're innocent until proven guilty, uh, it is also presumed that by your silence you acquiesce. Yep. So you sit there and you're innocent until they put up some evidence. Oh, you're still innocent. You have the opportunity to rebut that. But if you don't, it stands. Yeah. And if it's the only thing standing, mm-hmm. you're guilty. Yep. Yeah, we presumed you were innocent until you sat there and they pre- presented evidence that says you're guilty and then you didn't you didn't deny it. So what are we supposed to do? Well, you're guilty. You know, I've seen this happen. Yeah, and, you know, I understand. People, you know, I know people who have died because they failed to defend. Ooh. All right, they made affirmative defense. They made an affirmative defense, and one of them was Schiff. I can't think what's what's oh, Erwin Schiff. Schiff. Yeah, Erwin Schiff. Yes, he made an affirmative defense. He went up and he said, "Well, they have to prove to prove willfulness." They said it's, the law says it's an affirmative defense to claim that it was that your failure to file income taxes was not willful. But he didn't understand. He made that affirmative defense, said a deny that it was willful, submitted it in an affidavit, and after that he sat down and he said, well, I'm not going to say another word. All right? 
Well, what he didn't understand as an affirmative defense is a first and foremost a confession. Yep. Right? He didn't understand he was confessing to everything the prosecution was alleging, and then he sat down and he refused, and he thought his silence, once he made that affirmative defense, the burden of proof shifted from the prosecution to him. It was up to him to prove that his failure to file was not willful. Right. He didn't just get say. He thought if I said, "Well, it's not. It wasn't willful." I deny that it was willful, and now they have to prove it. Well, well and, and that's an affirmative defense. The prosecution's made his case. You are guilty unless you can introduce evidence that it was not willful. You know, and, and he is, didn't do that. This is so what he wound up. He didn't die right at this point, but he was in prison. He spent the rest of his life in the slammer, and ultimately died handcuffed to a bed someplace in the hospital. Well, and this is a lesson that I learned the hard way, because I always figured, uh, you know, uh, okay, uh, you know, I'm innocent until proven guilty, and uh, all uh-huh. that, so, uh, you know, and it wasn't that I didn't say anything, but uh, one thing is that you're not, you're innocent until proven guilty, the burden of proof is on the state. That's how it starts. But you see, the burden of proof shifts back and forth throughout the whole proceeding. And you've got to keep track of that. I mean, you've got to be cognizant of it. That it, it shifts. It doesn't just always stay the burden is on them. It, sh- it can shift back to you where now the burden's on you. And the burden is to disprove. The burden is to refute their claims that they've made into the court, their arguments, their... their uh, yeah, arguments. Um, they they argue that such and such is true. You've got to go after. What am I thinking of here? I don't think argument is what I'm. Maybe it is. Uh, they have the argument consists of a major premise, minus premise, and a conclusion. If they make an argument, major premise, anyone who doesn't pay income taxes is guilty of tax evasion. All right, minor premise. Frank didn't file income tax returns. Conclusion: Frank is guilty. If you can attack either one of those premises and defeat it, then the conclusion fails. But if you don't understand that this is a process of arguments, all right, and major premise, minor premise, conclusion, uh, if you don't understand that, recognize that this is an an argument, what are you going to do? You have to attack his premises. You have to be able to identify the premises and attack them and say, no, that's not true. Major premise does not apply in this instance. Minor premise does not apply in this instance. Minor premise is false. Either one, defeat either one or both, and the conclusion fails. Now they have a problem. If you sit on your buns and you don't recognize these arguments, and you don't realize that all you've got to do is refute the premises, identify the premises to reach their particular conclusions, challenge the premises and defeat them. And this probably ties up with your presumption, with your with your uh, notions on presumptions. Mm-hmm. I don't doubt that those presumptions are some of the premises for their argument. Well, right? yeah, most well, of those take those premises, take those premises out, take those presumptions out, and all of a sudden they got nothing. Well, my my view is 90% of every case is based on presumptions. Probably. I mean, you know, okay, you know, like I say, you know, there's exceptions. I mean, like murder, all right, fine, we found the knife, your fingerprints are all over it, you know, and this and any other thing, okay. That's not, a, you're still presuming, well, because your fingerprints are all over the murder weapon, we're presuming you did it. 
Well, circumstantial evidence, Your Honor. Your honor. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's probably yeah. a, a justified presumption. But then again, you know, this is what lawyers do. Well, now, wait a minute. Are you sure those are his fingerprints? Are you, well, you know, you start taking it apart, not at, well, he yep. did not murder him. He did not murder him. You don't just keep saying that over and over again. You go, well, wait a minute. Now you're relying on these fingerprints. Denial is not enough. You don't deny the conclusion. You have to go after the premises. That's right. You know, so if you're right. you're relying on fingerprints, attack the fingerprints. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, you know, a DUI. Make them admit that, you know, the possibility there may be duplicates there. Who knows? I don't know. Who can you say know, that? People they're... have done this very successfully would say, uh, you know, red light ticket, uh, tickets, you know, the camera tickets that they get yeah. at the red lights, you know, the they just say, they don't go, no, I didn't, no, I didn't, no, I didn't. That's not how they're winning. They're winning by saying, really? Well, when was the last time that camera was checked? Well, who's operating that camera? Who's checking that camera? When was the last time it was maintained? Uh-huh. You know, things like that. Same with a radar gun. When was the last time yep. you had that thing calibrated? And on top of which, who do I get to challenge who is the witness against me? Right. I get to I, when if someone I, I have a I have the right to confront the witnesses against me. Who is the witness against me? A camera. There's got to be a man or a woman somewhere who's prepared to testify that this is the truth. And there is no living man or woman who actually saw what transpired at that. At, at at that intersection when the car allegedly ran through a red light. Sure, and when they, they didn't they actually look. see it. They can go out and they can look at it. Later on, they look at the camera and say, well, it looks like that to me. But that is not, they don't have direct knowledge of it. Well, an easy thing, right. you know, without a lot of arguments that don't, you know, that don't, most people aren't really suited to make in a, in a thing like that. Well, you know. We got this picture right here. You know, look at this picture. Oh, really? Well, then I'd like to enter this picture. You know, and uh, spend a little time on the Internet, get a picture of the judge, put a naked body underneath it, and a dog and a donkey and some other things, and then uh, say, well, what about this judge? I got a picture of yeah, you here yeah, with yeah. farm animals. And, exactly. Uh, you know, is that you? I mean, really? Because you see... Pictures can be manipulated. The judge is going to say, Clarabelle, is that, is that, is that, is that picture of Clarabelle? Clarabelle, that's my cow. Yeah, I'll, I'd probably be arrested as some sort of bigot racist because I'm... Mm -hmm. You're intruding on the judge's privacy. I know, yeah, and and uh, their sexual preference. Uh-huh. <laughs> little point sexual is, diversity going on here. But the point <laughs> is, shock therapy, actually, if you can use it to your favor, works because things like little things like that... Go a long way. A picture tells a thousand no, words. It's like, I agree. oh, I really? Agree. You got a picture, huh? Hey, you know what? Me too. I got pictures too. <laughs> yeah. I've got pictures of you know the the, uh, and and that's actually a good point, especially in this day and age. Oh my gosh! All right, because with everything that's, I mean, how many false pictures are on the internet right now? Well, and there's cameras everywhere. Yeah, I know. You know, so yeah, you okay? You got a picture, good. Me too. Do you think? Do you think the case would be stronger if they had two cameras to testify against you <laughs> instead of just one? No, now, one camera from behind the car, another one from in front of the car, maybe one on the side of the car. Now, do we have out of the mouths of two or three cameras? Now, the see, thing shall be established. That's because cameras are known to lie and conspire together, so that can't be. It's and just a known of, fact. Liars. Let me have one other thing. You you read something earlier in the program that you found from Amjur right. on emergency. Mm-hmm. 
Did you find that under the topic of emergency in Andrew Second? No, I don't think so. Do you know where you found I, it? I don't. I don't. Can you send a copy of it to me? Yeah, 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 sure. Just cut and paste and send a copy on email? Yeah. Along with something on Dave Brown. Let's see if I can get hold of it. I'll send you the whole thing that I sent to, uh, you know, about the gold, uh, you know, about the uh, Article 1, Section 10, because it's right there. Okay. You know. That's uh, fine. That's fine. Yeah, I found it, uh, you know, it's just, you know, trying to get answers out of these people, though. And and really, we go back to the real problem is there's no accountability because, look, when, when I have a job, and the boss comes and asks me a question. I don't get to say, "Ah, oh, that's stupid. I'm not answering that." I don't get to do that. See, because there's consequences for me if I do that to my boss. Ah, oh, I'm not answering that. Matter of fact, you know what? You keep asking me that. Maybe I'll just yeah. He's your beneficiary. Maybe I'll lock your you in the closet. Your boss is your beneficiary. <laughs> you have a trust relationship, a fiduciary relationship with your employer. Right. He is the beneficiary. You are his fiduciary. You are his trustee. Um, uh, you have to work for his benefit, and he can fire you anytime he wants. He gets the benefit. He can terminate the trust relationship for any reason that strikes him as as appropriate. But if yeah, you, so I don't get to just tell him, no, I'm not. You know, that's a stupid question. I'm not answering. You know, but with these guys, with these government employees, see, they say that to us, and we go to the courts, and they go, man, they don't have to answer. And and then what? There's well, really a lack of accountability. Think about it. I, I understand that they are not accountable to you, but they are accountable to their employer, which is a municipal corporation. Can it, if they are accountable to their corporation as fiduciaries for the corporation as their beneficiary, their employer, does that corporation have any liability to you? Even though, I mean, there's wheels within wheels on this. If the officer is a fiduciary for the corporation, is the and the corporation is a beneficiary in relation to the officer, is the corporation also acting as a fiduciary in relationship to you? Do you can you cause the corporation to be liable to you and say your employer messed with me? Your employer deprived me of my rights. I'm not suing the the employee. I'm suing the employer, saying, "Look, you're the, you're you're responsible for these people." So, do you see what I'm saying there? Well, yeah, and it is. It, you know, um, if the corporation, let's say it's a city, yeah, and an officer's out there and he he does something to violate you, well, if he operated outside of policy. Mm-hmm. then he's on his own, and you can sue him in his personal capacity. I get that. But if he was doing, you know, within policy, then it is the employer. Yeah, that's who's got to be sued on It isn't thing. him. And he, it's something to bear in mind when we're thinking about these counterclaims. It's find out who is who is liable to me. Well, and somebody's got to be. Let me let me. There has to be some accountability. It may not be the police officer. He's liable to his employer, right? But his employer is perhaps liable to me, or maybe his employer is liable to a bigger corporation, and that one's liable. That officer is not liable to you unless he operated outside of the policy of his employer, because then he is liable to you. Because if yeah. he if he's operating in policy, then whoever wrote the policy, which is the corporation, they're the ones that violated you. He was just a uh, you know a, a 
a, a tool that they were using to. I understand, and they failed to adequately supervise or train. Now, if you don't sue him, you sue the corporation. Maybe Oregon, that's the way it works. In the Oregon Revised Statutes, at 165.075, fourth section, fiduciary means a trustee, guardian, execute, uh, uh, executor, executor yeah. administrator, receiver, or any other person acting in a fiduciary capacity. Mm-hmm. As agent or employee of an organization which is a fiduciary. So you see, that cop out there, as long as he is an employee, he is also a fiduciary. I agree. I agree. That's you know that's why. And then the beneficiary is his employer. And that how means, do we know? You know, how do we, we know that these people are not? How do we know that this police officer is not my my fiduciary? How is he paid? Well, yeah. How is he paid? I'll bet you that if he's paid with Federal Reserve notes, it becomes evidence. He's not working for the people. The people's money is gold and silver. If he were being paid with gold and silver or something that was directly convertible into gold and silver or a dollar that was redeemable in gold or silver, all right, he's still working for the people. I think. I suspect this is true. I won't tell you this is God's truth. I'm just saying I'm just playing with this idea. But if he's being paid with Federal Reserve notes, he's not working for the people. He's working for some other entity, and he's probably not even working within the borders of the State of the Union. He's working in some territory, administrative district, whatever, but not the State of the Union. And he's also not actually being paid. So this is a complex situation, and we may be able to work our way through this one of these days and see, you know, uh, we may be able to work this thing, work this through one of these days and see what's what the relationship, the chain of fiduciary and beneficial relationships are. We've got a cop who is a fiduciary for the municipal corporation. And the corporation is a beneficiary in relationship to the cop. He's not a, I'm not a beneficiary in relationship to the cop. Okay, but am I a relation, am I in a beneficial relationship to the corporation, to the municipal corporation, or is the municipal corporation uh, representing the state somehow, and I have to sue the state, and where's the chain? But if we could, if we could identify that chain of trustee and fiduciary relationships, and there might be, Several links in that chain. If you could identify that correctly and learn who is vulnerable to me, you know, it might be a congressman for all I know. Yeah. It might be a state representative. It might be the legislature. I don't know who's. I, I don't doubt this ultimately entailed. I won't be surprised if this ultimately involves risk management. Yeah. Hmm. I'll bet risk management might have ultimately be an agency that's. It's liable to the people. Now, I'm just guessing at that. I don't have any evidence to support that at all. But I'm just guessing that maybe if you can establish the link that goes from the comp to the municipality to the city corporation or whoever, and ultimately to risk management, maybe you're, maybe the solution on some of these problems is you go after risk management. They may have the liabilities of the people. And I won't, bet, I won't say that's true, but I won't 
I wouldn't necessarily even bet on it. Well, risk, risk, management, risk management actually acts as uh, insurance, but it's self-insurance. Because, like, mm-hmm. okay, here in Jackson County, and I found out about this, the, you know, again, through doing it, which, you know, you've got to, uh, if you're going to sue the county, you've yep. got to sue risk management. Okay. That's where you go. That is okay. where you go. That's who you deal with is risk mm-hmm. management. If you're mm-hmm. going to have a, you're really going to file a case and you're really going to do that, you, you go through risk management. Okay. And that risk management has been described as self-insurance. Of course, the courts have all ruled that self-insurance means no insurance. Because basically when you say, oh, I'm self-insured, that means you can trust me. I'll take care of it if something happens. Well, that's not insurance. That's your word. You're just giving your word. Yeah, okay. I'll, uh, you know, hey, if something happens, don't worry. I'll cover it. Okay, great. But insurance is when somebody else says, hey, uh, you know, we have the resources and he's paying us to do this and, uh, you know, we'll take care of it to this amount if something happens. That's why the courts have said, you know, self-insurance is no insurance. That's what that means. No, when you say you're self-insured, you're just saying you don't have any insurance. Are you sure that the courts have said that self-insurance is no insurance? Yep. I have a, a strong suspicion that the insurance is all in the alternative state. Well, I think so. Too. I'm not sure that there is any insurance within the states of the union. If they're telling you, if 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 it were true that self-insurance is no insurance, I think that's evidence that you're acting within the State of the Union rather I, than within the, I think, the territorial or administrative I state. think states of the Union uh, officials must be bonded. I think the bond yeah. is what yeah, the real yeah, estate. Yeah. And yeah. that is why I believe a lot of um, offices, like in Oregon here, for instance, require that you be bonded and insured. Meaning, no matter which capacity you're operating under, which means to me that, well, yeah. you must yeah. sometimes operate wearing two hats. Which yeah. one? Yeah. Exactly. Let me ask you this. If you're suing risk management, let's assume that risk management actually is associated with the states of the union. All right? And they're self-insured, which is to say they're not insured, they're not in the territorial state. Can you sue risk management for Federal Reserve notes, can assume for half a million dollars, or do you have to sue them for gold and silver? If you sue them for Federal Reserve notes, does that concede that you are acting within the state, uh, the territorial state, the administrative state? I think it probably would at least create a good presumption that you are. Yeah, I agree with you. you know. I agree. It might be. You know, I mean, there's so much stuff you got to learn you know, again, try you to could, understand, you, I try to it, argue. I think, again, you could rebut that and say, look, I'm using this under necessity, under duress. I didn't create the situation. You did. You know, I've asked you to rectify it. You won't. So I'm using what's necessary. And I'm not, you know, operating in a, in a fictional entity just because of that. You know, and I don't think you can, I think you can defeat their presumption. But I think if you don't, they will presume that, well, that's what you're doing. Yeah. You know, and I think that's... I think most of the Federal Reserve notes... Again, we're, we're, we're about out of time. We've got 60 seconds left. But I, I've told this story before, but I've heard a couple of times of individuals brought into court making patriot arguments, and the judge tells the bailiff to open their wallet, open their pockets, see what kind of money they're carrying. 
If they're carrying the Federal Reserve notes, it is presumed they're operating within the territory. If you don't have it, that's another story. Got a fifty? Got a gold piece in your pocket? Got uh, you know twenty dollars worth of silver with it? I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that. And and if it ever happens to me, I will see it because that's what I you know I have two one tenth gold pieces in my wallet at all times, and uh, I'm not sure I don't have any. Go into court carrying Federal Reserve notes. I mean, that would be a recommendation. Oh yeah, I won't. And then you know, hey, yeah, sure, empty my pile. Look at that. Oh look, uh, you know, American Liberty. Ooh, hey, gold coins of the, of the realm. What does this mean, Judge? I'll tell you what it means. It means we're out of time. We are. We are. Yep. Yeah, Frank. All right. Thank you. Know, I enjoyed it, Frank. Thank caller. Uh, thank the audience. Hope you'll tune in again next Tuesday. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Frank, and everybody who's listening to this program. Calling in. Thank you very much. Good night. From and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement.
people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. about where your next meal will come from if the power is out for an extended period of time, I'd like to suggest Lumana Foods, a family-owned business with a passion for food quality and taste, as well as long-term storage reliability. Lumana.com. Check them out for your family's health and security. Food so good tasting and good for you, it can be eaten every day. Standard buckets are GMO-free, contain no aspartame, high fructose corn syrup, autolyzed yeast extract, chemical preserve, or soy. You can be confident your Numana meals will be there for you and your family when you need them during an emergency. Numana.com, a nutritionally healthy way to prepare for any disaster. That's Numana.com. N-U-M-A-N-N-A.com.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still Tuesday, December 20th, 2016. It's about uh, nine minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time, if that's when it is where you're at. We're live, 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. You can call in. You'll get on the air. You can also participate by going to our chat room, which is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. You get there, and um, you can participate in the show by asking questions or making comments, but you don't have to. You can just go in there and socialize if you'd like. Anyhow, so all that said, uh, let's just get to the things and stuff. Well, you know, you've heard about Christine Lagarde, right? She was found guilty... Guilty of criminal negligence. But, hey, you know, what's a little criminal negligence, you know? The International Monetary Fund's executive board caught a glimpse this week of what life might be like in the wilderness of a rapidly shifting world order. It didn't take long, uh, them long to slam the door. Christine Lagarde's conviction on Monday of negligence in French court cast uncertainty over her ability to continue as the IMF's managing director. Within hours of the judgment in which she escaped any punishment, the fund's 24-member executive board put to rest any speculation that she might have to resign, praising her outstanding leadership and the wide respect she commands around the world. She's a criminal, she's a felon, and she was negligent. But hey, oh, we just she's outstanding. Folks, look, when an organization says something like that about a criminal, a convicted criminal, not like Hillary Clinton, you know, that just should have been convicted 50 or 60 times, but actually convicted. Actually convicted. And she doesn't even get fired. She gets no punishment. You know what, folks? The people around the world should be outraged by this. But life goes on. Nobody cares, I suppose. Oh, here's something. A Russian diplomat? No, no, no. I'm not talking about the ambassador. Another, a different Russian diplomat, was found dead from gunshot wounds at home just hours after ambassador, the ambassador was killed at the art, art exhibition in Turkey. Hmm. What do you think? His name was Peter Polishkov, 56. He was discovered with a bullet injury to his head. Yep, the alleged shooting came just hours after the news broke of the assassination of Russian ambassador to Turkey. Now, why is this guy just murdered and that guy was assassinated? I mean, aren't they both assassinated? Anyway, so what's going on, folks? Do you think it's just a coincidence? Oh, gee, it's just, you know, these things happen every once in a while. You know, everybody dies. That's all. Just, uh, you know... Or, 
do you think maybe somebody, like Putin said, was directing the hands of the murderers? Do you think? You think it might be a message? Because Obama said, hey, we're going to make Russia pay. We're going to make them pay. We're going to retaliate. And when we do, it'll be of our choosing at our time in our way. Well, we know killing people is D.C.'s way. Okay, so we know that much. Do you think it's possible? I mean, Obama's tried everything else to start World War III with Russia. You know, I mean, maybe assassinating some of their people. Maybe that'll do it, huh? He's in a jam. He's got to hurry up. Time's running out, man. It's December 20th already. One month. You realize one month, 30 days, January 20th, man. You know, everybody's happy, everybody's, you know, thrilled and all that, but I can only imagine, because I was just a baby, what things were like when John F. Kennedy got elected. Now listen, John F. Kennedy was a flawed man, as is Donald Trump, as am I, as are probably you. But, he was young, he had a pretty wife, he had nice-looking kids, very, uh... You know, a a lot in common with Trump other than the young part, okay? But I don't think in the, uh, you know, that was in the 60s. I don't think in our uh, culture right now, the way it is, I don't think we would ever elect anybody that young because we just don't seem to gravitate towards, oh, well, they couldn't do any good. Look how young they are. Look how young they are. You can't know anything when you're that young. And then, you know, there's there's something to be said for that. But there's also something to be said for you're too old. You've been around too long. You've been corrupted too long to be anything. But there's, I can only imagine that there's a lot of the same enthusiasm, a lot of the same hope, except for, you know, Michelle Obama. And why should she have any hope? Huh? Gravy trains ending for that leech. She's going to have to pay for her own vacations. Oh, of course, we'll be flipping the bill for uh, the Secret Service to follow them all over the world. And I'm sure that, why do you think they don't want to leave Washington? Gosh, if you think a senator, you know, if a senator can make a couple million a year being a lobbyist, what do you think an ex-president could make? Oh, wait, let's ask Bill Clinton. A few hundred million dollars would be the right answer, okay? So Obama ain't going anywhere, neither is his monkey wife. Oh, did I say monkey wife? I didn't mean that. I meant man, wife. Sorry. I don't want to give monkeys a bad name or anything. Because I really don't have anything against monkeys, to tell you the truth. But, freaks like her, yes. All right, let's see. Some more here. Let's go all the way over to here. Ah. Russian hacking accusation. This remarkable spasm of stupidity is destroying the web of lies about Russia. Russia has been scoring so many wins over the past weeks and months, routing the U.S. and its ISIS-supporting allies in Syria. And it's not just ISIS-supporting allies. It's the ISIS 
creator and supporter Washington, D.C. of ISIS. Trump winning, Rex Tillerson's nomination, Brexit, the Italian vote, the leading candidates in the French election. Sometimes one has to pinch oneself when reading the morning news. How could it possibly be going so well after so many tough years? Well, the pendulum always swings back the other way, and it's not necessarily a good thing. See, this is what I'm saying. Everybody's thrilled, and that's good, you know, that everybody feels good about Trump being in there. Now, one of two things, well, one of three things could happen. Okay, let's look on the bright side. He could be a great president. Everything he said he would do, he's going to do, and everything will go great. That's one possibility. Another possibility is he gets in there, and not much afterwards, he gets killed just like John F. Kennedy got killed. And, you know, it wasn't a lone gunman, gunman. It wasn't the Muslims. It wasn't the Mexicans. It wasn't the disgruntled KKK. It was the insiders at, in the Washington, D.C. establishment, the George Bushes, the Lyndon Bain Johnsons. Okay? It was them. They're the ones that did it. Trump better watch his back, and I'm glad to read today that Trump is keeping his private security. Oh, it's causing a big story because all the modern presidents rely on the Secret Service. And, yeah, we see how good that's worked out for the modern presidents. Gee, Ronald Reagan got shot by one of his Secret Service guys. John F. Kennedy was shot because the Secret Service was in on it. They stopped the car, they didn't do their job, and they allowed him to be killed right in front of them. So you know what? I wouldn't want the Secret Service anywhere around me. You know what? You go out to the gate out there and you guard the gate. I'll keep my private security guys next to me. You, you go stand outside. Because as far as I know, you'll be the one trying to kill me. So... Good for Donald Trump for keeping his own security uh, people. I'd keep my own airplane, too, to tell you the truth. But just when we thought it couldn't get any better, along comes another gift. This remarkable spasm of stupidity from the dark side, the neocon-dominated big media security state rotten politician axis of evil, by picking up this Russia hacking theme and running with it, they are unwittingly destroying their own carefully constructed web of lies about Russia, which they have so artfully woven over the years and hoodwinked many Americans and Europeans into believing. Hey, when I was a teenager, I was one of them hoodwinked people. Oh, man, I bought the whole, you know, Soviet Union uh, evil empire hook, line, and sinker, man. I did. I bought that hook, line, and sinker. But, you know, I got over it. It is a case of pushing the envelope too far. A congenial liar might successfully sell one whopper after another for a while, but what inevitably happens is that this only makes the liar careless. Gosh, we can see that, can't we? I mean, I've complained about this myself, and I've heard other people complain about it, that, God, you know, when I was younger... 
We all knew politicians lied, but they put a little more effort into it. You know, they told you lies that, well, I don't know, I think he's lying because his lips are moving, but, you know, it, it, it sounds like it could be true. Yeah, the good old days, you remember, when you had to think about whether a politician was lying or not. Now they're so blatantly stupid about their lies that it's like, come on, man, can't you put a little effort into lying? You know, you lie so much, you think you'd be a lot better at it than you are. They're pathetic. I mean, it really is. It's ter- terrible. But it makes them careless, apparently. He begins to lose a sense of perspective, partially believing his own feverish imagination. And then, when he's in a tough spot, he'll tell such a wild one that even those who were taken in previously will see through it and begin to question everything the liar's been saying going way back. Well, well, this is precisely what's occurring around the world, but in particular, with a vengeance in the United States. Americans who voted for Trump, and many who didn't even, most of whom never really got much thought to Russia, or gave much thought to Russia, and if they did, were probably taken in by the mainstream media lie that Russia is an agent for evil in the world, can see perfectly well that it is highly unlikely that the Russians had much influence on the election. It is obvious to even a casual observer that what in fact turned the tide was the personality of Hillary Clinton, her missteps, and the rot and corruption of the establishment, including the media, which so doggedly tried to push her through. The numbers hurt. A Fox News poll from last Wednesday hardly an organization sympathetic to Russia, reports that 59% of Americans don't buy the Russian hacking story. 59%? Hey, you know what? You win an election with 59%. That's considered a landslide these days. Which is another way of saying that they think the accusers are probably lying. Well, that's got to hurt. Unable to provide any evidence for their extraordinary accusations... The old establishment is looking particularly foolish, leading many Americans to question a lot of what they've been told by the same people over the years. Well, yeah, let's look at some of the things we've been told by the same people over the years. You remember the whole weapons of mass destruction, right? This is why we have to go into Iraq again and kill Saddam Hussein. Because he has weapons of mass destruction. You remember that one, right? Hey, U.S. intelligence was really confident that they had weapons of mass destruction. Why, look at those aluminum tubes over there. See aluminum tubes? Well, everybody knows aluminum tubes are used for nuclear bombs. What? Really? I didn't know that. I thought they were just aluminum tubes, so... Anytime I see an aluminum aluminum tube, somebody's going to make a nuclear bomb. Okay, whew, good to know. Yeah, same people. Same people who brought you the magic bullet theory about how John F. Kennedy got killed by the lone gunman with the magic bullet. Uh-huh. Same intelligence organizations. Same intelligence agencies that said, oh, yeah, Bay of Tonkin. Yeah, huh? Yep, them Vietnamese, boy, they did it. 
No, they didn't. That was a lie. Oh, hey, the same intelligence people that said uh, that brought us the war against Spain? Remember the Maine. Remember what about the Maine? Oh, well, it was sunk by the Spanish. Well, no, it really wasn't. The coal burner blew up and it sunk. But hey, Hearst and his boys, they wrote stories. They blamed the uh, you know Spanish and off to the Spanish-American War we go. Woohoo! They have lied to us continuously. How about Pearl Harbor? You like that one? Yeah, they knew the Japanese were coming. They knew right where they were, and they refused to tell the guys at Pearl Harbor because they wanted the attack. Folks, we've been lied to by this intelligence apparatus since the beginning, since they were ever formed. They've been lying since the day they were put into existence. And they're still lying. Except, see, now what's the difference is we're finding out their lies faster because information is moving faster. Oh, sure, we have now eventually found out that the Maine was not sunk by the Spanish. We have eventually found out that the North Vietnamese never really did attack anybody in the, in, in the Bay of Tonkin. You know, oh, oh yeah, we, we, we found out that, yes, uh, Roosevelt did, in fact, know the Japanese were coming to attack Pearl Harbor, and he let it happen. Matter of fact, he did more than let it happen. He made it happen. He pushed them into it. How about 9-11? Huh? How about that? Oh, gee, golly, we're, we're the big superpower, the rust bucket Russians. They're nothing. Uh, they're not a superpower anymore. And hail to the chief and all that good stuff. And, oh, golly, here comes three commercial airliners to run into buildings and knock them down. Really? Where was the Air Force? Where was the Navy? Where was our air defense? Where was anybody? Huh? Nowhere. Nowhere, because we're a superpower after all. They let it happen and they lied about it. The intelligence apparatus in the United States is there only to keep the truth away from the American people. The Russians know everything this government's doing. The Chinese know everything we're doing. We know everything the Chinese and Russians are doing. They all spy on each other and they all know exactly what they're doing. The only ones that don't know is the, is the people. That's what the intelligence agencies are geared to do, is to keep the truth from the people. Because these elitists are using your money, your labor, your life as their little play toy to do what they want, to play their little chess game that they play. Identify your enemy, folks. Recognize who it is. It's not Julio down the street. You know, look, Julio might be here illegally, and he's got to go, and he's breaking the law and all that. But he's not really, his goal is really, truly to make his life better. And if that means, you know, making your life worse, so be it. But he wants to make his life better. These people in control, folks, they want to kill you. They want to control you. They want to make you their slaves. Okay? 
They don't have anything good there. there there's no excuse for them. They are really truly, truly your enemies. The George Soros, the Koch brothers, all of them. Anyway, let's say, uh, let's see here. Um, meanwhile, the massive pro-Trump media, which is now larger than the old dying neocon media and some big names in the mainstream like Fox's Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity are ridiculing the latest belly flop by the old guard while the Trumpster himself is pummeling them on Twitter with sarcasm. <laughs> the, the liars have marched into a complete debacle, like Napoleon at Waterloo, soldiering on to their ultimate destruction. And Russia is banking her lucky stars. <laughs> well, we all should, because you know what? If Hillary Clinton got in there, uh, she would have had... World War Three going with Russia before too long. And it wouldn't have taken much, because if that would have happened, Putin knows the writing on the wall, man. I don't think he'd sit by and wait for her to come to town. I think maybe he'd come for her. Which can happen to a nicer uh, whatever she is. Which, you know, I don't want to call her names because, you know, I'll be insulting somebody. Not her, but whatever I call her name. Like if I call her a piece of garbage, you know, giving garbage a bad name. I don't want to do that. So instead, I'm going to take a break. We'll be back in a bit. Pick up his brand new album, Blue Highways, and tickets to Colin's show at Massey Hall coming up in February 2017 by heading over to ColinJames.com. <laughs>
ਜਾਣਦਾ ਹੈ Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills 1 gallon every 3 and a half hours. Go to americanvoiceradio.com, click on the superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. If the power is out for an extended period of time, I'd like to suggest Lumana Foods, a family-owned business with a passion for food quality and taste, as well as long-term storage reliability. Lumana.com. Check them out for your family's health and security. Food so good tasting and good for you, it can be eaten every day. Standard buckets are GMO-free, contain no aspartame, high fructose corn syrup, autolyzed yeast extract, chemical preservatives, or soy. You can be confident your Numana meals will be there for you and your family when you need them during an emergency. Numana.com, a nutritionally healthy way to prepare for any disaster. That's Numana.com. N-U-M-A-N-N-A.com.
not just yet, because we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still Tuesday, December 20th, 2016, about 8, uh, well, almost 8.40 out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If that's when it is where you're at, we're live, 800-932-1980. Or go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And, uh, you know, you can um, you can participate in the show from there. Or uh, just socialize. It's up to you. Anyhow, it's there for you. All right. Let's, uh, oh, okay, so they're guessing. Um, the first song there was uh, Colin James, and the second one there was Brother Dedge. I don't know if that's how he says his name. D-E-G-E. Anyhow, let's get to it. Uh, where 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 are we here? Where are we? Oh, I went way too far, didn't I? Here we go. All right. Uh, Obama's Russia remarks at final final presser cement legacy of stupidity in foreign policy. <laughs> well, instead of taking the opportunity to go out sounding like an intelligent statesman, Obama kept to his same old song and dance. At his final end-of-the-year press conference before departing on his final taxpayer-paid Hawaiian vacation, Barack Obama decided to repeat a laundry list of ignorant, factually inaccurate statements about Russia as the icing on the cake of his eight years of disastrous foreign policy. The Russians can't change us. This is Obama. Or significantly weaken us. They are a smaller country. Hmm. Somebody get that guy a map. They are a weaker country. Their economy doesn't produce anything that anyone wants to buy except oil and gas and arms. Well, oil and gas and weapons is the biggest money makers on the planet, man. You add, add heroin to that. Oh, wait. Russia can't sell heroin because the United States is doing that. So what exactly is different here? They don't produce anything that anybody wants except oil, gas, and arms. What do we produce? We produce oil. We produce gas. We produce a lot of arms that we sell around the world. Yeah, and opium. Woohoo! Yeah, baby. We got one up on the Russians, man. We're selling 93% of the opium in the world. Woohoo! They're not. See? We are number one. Oh, yeah, baby. Mm-hmm. They don't innovate. But they can impact us if we lose track of who we are. They can impact us if we abandon our values. What values are those, as a, anyway? You mean values like give Planned Parenthood money so they can kill more babies and sell their chopped up body parts? Those kind of values? Or uh, is it the values where we let some transvestite freak homosexual use the bathroom with your little daughter and son? Is, is it those values? Is it the values where we allow homosexuals to openly marry? Is, is, are those the values are we talking about here? Because you know what? If they are, I, hey, I'm all for abandoning those values. Mr. Putin can weaken us just like he's trying to weaken Europe. Really? Wait a minute. 
Was it Mr. Putin who brought in all the Syrian Muslims into Germany and England? Was that him? Did he do that? Because you know what? If he did that, then you betcha he's weakening. He's destroying Europe if he did that. But oh, wait. He didn't do that. That was Andrea Merkel who did that. Hmm. If we start buying in the notion that it's okay to intimidate the press or lock up dissidents or discriminate against people because of their faith or what they look like. You mean, he's talking about Muslims. Because you know what? People of their faith. Well, yeah, you know what? When your faith includes killing me, oh, I am going to discriminate against you. Matter of fact, I'm going to discriminate against you with, uh, uh, what do they call that? Extreme prejudice? Yeah. Because you know what? If your faith involves killing me, yeah, then uh, guess what? You've got to go. And I will be discriminating against you with extreme prejudice. He goes on, and what I worry about more than anything is the degree to which because of the fearless the fearless, because of the fearless of the bipartisan battle, you start to see certain folks in the Republican Party and Republican voters suddenly finding a government and individuals who stand contrary to everything we stand for as being okay, because that's how much we dislike Democrats. Well, yeah, I bet you he's afraid of that, because his party is on the verge of destruction. Why? Because they have been exposed as a criminal operation of communists. They have been exposed as completely infiltrated by the worldwide communist revolution. This isn't McCarthyism. This is a fact. McCarthy was right. And the press crucified him because the press has always been red. Meaning communists. But really, you know, communists now, because as you see, you know, you can read a book on communism and it sounds pretty good. And that's what happens to these children in college, in the universities. All their professors are pulling down 100, 150 grand a year. They come in there with their frizzy hair and their, you know, their disheveled look because, you know, they're tenured and they can't be fired. And they come in there with their books and they tell them stories about communism and how it works. And, oh, look at this. Everybody's equal. Everybody works. Everybody benefits. Nobody goes hungry. Nobody's left behind. It's just, you know what? That is communism on paper. But when you put it into the real world, it's never worked like that anywhere. Ever. But you see, children in the university setting, they don't have to deal with the real world. They're in a fantasy setting where, la, 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 everything's great. I have my little room. I have my friends. We get drunk all the time. I get laid, you know, whenever I want. This is great. I love communism. This is wonderful. Somebody else is paying for my college. Uh... You know, even if it's yourself, even if you took out a loan. See, when you're in the university, you're not worried about paying back that loan. 
You just think communism's great, man. Everything's free. This is wonderful. And everybody loves me. I have safe spaces. I have cry rooms. And I can go get counseling if I don't feel good. You know, I mean, really, honestly. Anyway, there's not a lot of, you know, need to waste a lot of time finding examples to disprove Barry's final litany of stupidity on the world's other superpower. Suffice it to say, it is a fact the USA, which is smaller physically, produces little domestically and has outsourced most innovation to China and India or else imports Chinese and Indian scientists and engineers. The U.S. economy is based almost totally on the defense and financial industries. Yeah, Europe locks up dissidents who protest against immigration or ask questions about new uh, about World War II. Europe and America discriminate in favor of ethnic and other minorities in education and hiring. Now, wait a minute. Not only do they lock people up to questions about World War II... In Germany, if you even question the six million number of the so-called Holocaust, you're going to jail. And Germany has stated right up front, the truth is no defense. It doesn't matter if you're telling the truth. You're not allowed to say it. That's where they're at. People who are serious about their Christian faith or traditional values face increasingly marginalization and outright hostility from the state. Russia is the opposite of all or almost all those things. No wonder Obama displays barely concealed contempt for that country. But by recycling inane establishment talking points on Russia which bear no relation to reality, Obama lost the last chance he had to at least convince people he knew something himself, as opposed to simply being a front man regurgitating rehearsed policy positions for eight years. Bye-bye, Barry. Finish your final Christmas golf trip and get the hell out of the White House. (laughs) That's how that ends. (laughs) Hey, CIA analyst, you remember that wonderful uh, intelligence community? Yeah. CIA analyst who interrogated Saddam Hussein just blew the lid off the U.S. official story. Oh, man, you mean they lied again? A CIA analyst who interrogated Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein has some damning words about the invasion, saying the United States got it wrong and was critically mistaken on its military action in the country. See, they didn't get it wrong, and they weren't mistaken. They were lying. Okay, folks, you've got to start realizing these people aren't as incompetent as, as this. They're just liars. They didn't get anything wrong. They decided to lie. And then they got caught. Now, oh, we got it wrong. No, you didn't get it wrong. You lied and you got caught. John Nixon, the independent report, specifically pointed to the CIA's view of Hussein's feelings about the use of chemical weapons on Iraqi civilians, a narrative frequently touted by the George W. I'm a friggin' idiot uh, Bush administration during the nascent invasion. Nixon says CIA officials were also mistaken about Hussein's health, personal habits, and his involvement in running Iraq. Well, let's see. The former president heard only what he wanted to hear, including that Iraq had somehow been responsible for the attacks on September 11, 2001. 
Look at who was involved, Nixon recalled the Iraqi leader telling the interrogators. What countries did they come from? Saudi Arabia. And this uh, ringleader, Mohammed Atta, was he an Iraqi? No, he was Egyptian. Why do you think I was involved in the attacks? In fact, Nixon noted Saddam had actually believed 9-11 would bring Iraq and America closer because Washington would need his secular government to help fight fundamentalism. How woefully wrong he had been. Yeah, this goes on and on, folks. It just gets worse and worse. Hmm. Here's uh, here's actually uh, something off uh, Veterans News Now. West directed killer's hand in assassination of Russian ambassador. Uh-oh. Virtually everything the Western official sources have been saying about Aleppo and the Syrian war, more generally, is seen to be a grotesque lie. Yep. The White House condemned what it called a heinous attack. While the European Union's foreign policy chief uh, vowed solidarity with Russia. Mm-hmm. You know, I think they're all wrong. I think the United States government did this. I think the CIA is... I, I think they're really desperate. And why I think they're desperate... Oh, well... I'm not going to go into this because I've got more stuff that I want to tell you. How about this? Los Angeles mayor creates a $10 million legal defense fund for illegal aliens. That's right. It will provide rapid response funding to nonprofit legal service organizations that represent individuals and families facing removal proceedings in the country, as well as supporting pilot programs that seek to expand the pool of immigration attorneys available to provide representation. Where the hell are they getting three million freaking dollars for this up front? Huh? You know, meanwhile, there's 49,000 homeless people in Los Angeles. They don't give a damn about them. Then there's 11,500 living in vehicles. They don't care about them either. Oh, no. We got to help the illegal aliens. Well, I'll tell you what. CIA may be in big trouble. And this is why I believe they killed the uh, Russian ambassador. I think they killed the Russian ambassador because they're trying to get a reaction from Russia that makes them valuable again. The CIA needs to be relevant or they're going to be shut down. Now Congress is coming after them. Not because they lied about it, but because they leaked a top-secret document about it. Congressman Peter King told ABC News, We have supposedly a CIA director, John Brennan, leaking information to the Washington Post to a biased newspaper like the New York Times, findings and conclusion that he's not telling the Intelligence Committee. It seems to me... Some very unwise decisions and actions are being made and taken by certain elements of the CIA. Well, duh. Now, why would the CIA leak information to the Washington Post? Oh, I know why. Because the CIA owns the Washington Post. 
They paid $600 million for the Washington Post. Of course, they gave it to Amazon's Bezos so he could go buy the Washington Post for them. He's a straw man. It's a straw purchase. The Washington Post is nothing but the megaphone for the CIA's propaganda BS. That's why they leaked the documents there. Why wouldn't they? Now, if you remember what Obama said, the short-sighted moron who obviously has no grasp of the facts or reality at all, this is like the oh, yeah, Russia's a rust bucket. They ain't got no uh, technology. They got nothing. Yeah. Oh, they got nothing. Yeah, they got their fifth generation air superiority platform flying around. Ours, well, it doesn't quite work right. And here's an article. Pentagon falling behind in advancing U.S. military tech superiority. Huh. Wow, somebody else has noticed. Imagine that. The technical superiority of the U.S. military is at risk if the Pentagon's future leaders do not incentivize technology innovation among potential partners in Silicon Valley and other public and private benefactors of Pentagon cash, a report says. Well, they're too busy misplacing cash. Hey, how much stuff could $9 trillion buy? Hmm? I could get a few nice things for that. A new report by the Center for a New American Security says the U.S. Department of Defense is falling behind in capitalizing on the nation's intellectual, financial, and institutional advantages sufficient to maintain its military technical superiority. The erosion of U.S. military technical advances increases military risk, weakens the deterrent value of traditional capabilities, and undermines the DOD's ability to generate nuanced military operations to address the growing range of policy contingencies faced by the nation. Blah, 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 blah. In other words, all their crap is broken and old, and the news crap doesn't work. Okay? Because they're so stupid and corrupt that they can't get anything done. And it's not by accident, folks. It's not just a bunch of greedy fools running around. They don't know what they're doing. The United States military is being destroyed purposely by the Democrats, okay? And that includes the Democrats posing as Republicans that we like to refer to as rhinos, okay? They're Democrats. There really ought to be some kind of standard in the Republican Party. Something along the lines that, hey, you know what? We have a platform. And if you don't vote at least 90% of this platform, you're out of the party. You can go be a Democrat, but you're not going to be in this party anymore. That's what they ought to do. Uh, here's something. I'm not going to have time to really get into it right now, but I'll bring it to you anyway. You can go look it up for yourself and read about it. Obama setting up shadow government to directly oppose Trump's presidency. Mm. Author Ed Klein recently appeared on Fox and Friends Weekend to discuss a startling theory that involves Obama working behind the scenes to retain power and oppose the Trump administration. According to Klein, it looks as if Obama is setting up shop 
for a sort of shadow government in Washington. For the past hundred years, every president who's outgoing has packed up his stuff, gone home, and not criticized his successor. That is not what the Obamas are planning to do. They rented an eight-bedroom mansion in the Calorama section of Washington from Joe Lockhart, who is Bill Clinton's last press secretary. In that house, there's enough room for Valerie Jarrett as well as Michelle and the kids, a place for ten cars to park. They are setting up what they are calling a shadow government. Wow. Increased, interestingly, Klein's claim correlates with already documented attempts by President Obama to attack the incoming administration, as well as moves to stay in power. This also comes at a time when numerous leftist groups shift their strategy towards attacking alternative media and laying the groundwork for direct opposition to President Trump for years to come. Well, you know what? If I was Trump, one word, one word out of Obama, and I'd have him arrested. I'd find some reason to arrest him. Honestly, and his little dog, too. Seriously, uh, you know, that doesn't sound uh, American or anything like that, but that's too bad. You know what? They do it to us. Let's do it to them. One word out of Obama, because really he ought to pack up his crap and leave, but he's not going to do it. He just likes to go to Hawaii and spend our money. He doesn't want to actually go live there anymore. He wants to stay in Washington where he can maybe come back into power or something. Well, anyway, I got to go. I'll be back again tomorrow. We got good stuff coming up. And as always, thanks for listening. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. In the 1970s, John Perkins helped U.S. intelligence agencies and multinationals convince leaders of developing nations to accept loans from the World Bank and other organizations in order to have them award lucrative contracts to American business. He takes you inside the world of global finance in his memoir, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. This is an hour and 15 minutes. I'm Barbara Mead. I'm one of the owners here at Politics and Prose. And it's my pleasure. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.